listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. It's back. The coronavirus, I mean, I know it's never been away, but there's a massive spike in Britain over the last 24 hours. Is the second wave now here? And on the anniversary of 9-11, we'll be looking at the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns with a man who knows the answer to most things. We'll be looking at the royal family. Yes, them again, particularly Harry and Meghan, and of course, Prince Andrew, with the right honorable Norman Baker, the man who knows where the secrets are buried in the royal household at Buckingham Palace. We'll be talking about British politics, but we'll also be talking about American politics and looking at the Korean Peninsula. On the 75th anniversary of the surrender of Japanese fascism, we'll be looking at the mass rape of Korean women by the Japanese fascist army, which has never been atoned for or even apologized. So fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy ride. It's the mother of all talk shows. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. George Galloway. This is Radio Sputnik. And this is London, but of course coming to you all over the world, thanks to the wonders of the internet and SputnikNews.com. We're on FM in the Washington, D.C. area, 105.5 are the magic numbers there. And on AM, out of Maryland, right across the United States, from city to burning city. And you can hear us all over the world, of course, on the aforementioned SputnikNews.com. But if you are one of the half a million people who last week watched as well as listened, here is some important information. We need you, if you're watching on Facebook, either on my own Facebook page or on RT's multiple Facebook platforms, to share, share, share with all of your friends, because we need to get these numbers back up towards the million mark, where we were as long ago as episode 29, and this is episode 64. But the visual and audio audience of this show undoubtedly makes it the biggest show of its kind anywhere in the entire world. So you're in good company here. Tell someone else about it, won't you? Now, in addition to the Things I've mentioned already, we will be talking, of course, about 9-11. 9-11, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist, and I am not. In fact, the conspiracy theorists imagine I am a part of the conspiracy. But you don't have to be one of those to know that there are many things about what happened on 9-11, 2001, that we do not yet know or understand, and that that is partly a result of deliberate obfuscation, hiding of 
truths that we have a right to know, not just because of the enormous death toll uh, that was created on the day of the attack on the Twin Towers and other targets, but because of the world-shaking reverberations which ensued, and which ensued to this day, the earth is still shaking as a result of what happened in the United States on 9-11. John Duffy is an author and an activist, and his book, The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, is the product of a decade of intense study and an investigation, frankly, of the many mysteries that still surround that subject. And it's important. It's important not just for our American audience. It's important to everybody in the world. We'll be talking, as I said, about the tremendous spike in coronavirus cases in Britain over the last 24 hours, very nearly doubled in 24 hours. Well over a thousand new cases were reported. We won't know, of course, how many fatalities or even hospitalizations that will result from that. But if it doubles again tomorrow, if it doubles again the next day, we are in very serious trouble, both in terms of our ability to withstand such an assault on our parlously underfunded, over-privatized, and enfeebled public services, but also our entire economy already in a 20% recession and with mass unemployment already here with millions more lost jobs coming down the pipeline. And if you think it's bad here, well, we'll be taking a look at the United States where it is much, much worse. We'll be talking also about this subject of Korea. I did a broadcast this week you can see it on the uh, YouTube uh, for the Workers' Party on the 75th anniversary of the defeat and surrender of Japanese fascism. I tried in that talk to uh, adumbrate the scale of the crimes committed by Japanese fascism and ask one or two pertinent questions. Uh, namely, how come Japan after the war was endlessly rewarded? was never punished in any way uh, for the crimes that it committed uh, between 1937 and 1945. How come the people who resisted Japanese fascism quickly became America's enemies and the state which produced Japanese fascism quickly became a golden boy to be endlessly rewarded, built up in the fashion of a dagger held at the heart of North Korea, of Vietnam, and of course the big enchilada of China. And in uh, the course of my discussion, I touched on uh, the tremendous crimes uh, that the Japanese fascist empire committed, of course against China, most notably of all, 20 million Chinese may have perished in that war, second only to the then Soviet Union in terms of sacrifice made for the defeat of fascism. Uh, but Korea, which the northern part at least, at least is uh, forever being painted as the bad guy, 
But actually, Japanese fascism completely devastated Korea. And not long afterwards, the United States completely devastated it again. And so it's always worth looking at Korea. But we'll be uh, talking to a woman who has translated a book about the systematic, industrialized use of sexual slavery of Korean women by the fascist Japanese army. Hundreds of thousands of Korean women were taken into forcible sexual slavery and none of them have been compensated in the post-war era. And we'll be talking also uh, to Dr. Deepa Driver, who's an academic and a trade unionist on the issue of Julian Assange. The, the courtroom drama of the century uh, begins tomorrow at the Old Bailey in London, where the hearing to decide whether Julian Assange, the world's greatest journalist and publisher, is to be sent to the United States forcibly, extradited, to face trumped up charges that would put him in prison for 175 years. We would literally never see or hear from Julian Assange again. A man who exposed crimes, crimes against humanity, war crimes, crimes against the taxpayers of our own countries, a man who blew the whistle, who published the truth, the incontrovertible truth, never contradicted truth, is facing incarceration for the rest of his life. Just think about that. I've been thinking about it day and night for many years now, but too many people have not thought about it at all. So we'll be covering, of course, that story. There are other breaking stories uh, in Britain and in the United States. Uh, the uh, attempt to finally kill Donald Trump's presidency is underway with the, uh, I suppose you might call them, disgruntled former employees of Trump, who are now telling us, now, only now, uh, that he had endless, bottomless contempt for the soldiers in the United States Army, those who came back uh, disabled from America's wars, or those who lie in the ground in military cemeteries, having lost their lives in America's wars. Now, you can believe uh, the uh, word of these uh, whistleblowers or not. There's no evidence, of course. It's a matter of judgment uh, as to which liars you believe. I believe that Donald Trump is an, is an inveterate liar. I believe he's a pathological liar. I believe he's a psychologically disturbed liar. But I don't believe these particular lies. You can tell us what you think. You can tell us on the poll, by the way. There was foreign interference in the poll last week. And somehow, Joe Biden's vote got transcribed for Donald Trump's vote and vice versa. At least that's what's being alleged. So, you'll need to vote again. If you could vote in the US election, who would you vote for? A, Joe Biden, B, Donald Trump, C, Jesse Ventura. Vote now on my Twitter feed, and I promise I'll make sure the result is absolutely true and verifiable 
uh, by the end of this poll. So uh, you can vote on my Twitter feed right now. There it is. It's on the screen right in front of you. We've slightly changed the order into alphabetical, which is what it should have been from the beginning. And there was apparently a brouhaha in the back room here uh, that caused uh, this uh, hiccup, shall we call it. So with uh, due apologies to all concerned, you're going to have to vote again on that. Jesse Ventura, of course, is not certain to be on the ballot paper, but the better he does tonight, maybe the more encouraging uh, that will be. But there's a breaking story in Britain today, yet another stabbing rampage in Birmingham, the second city of the United Kingdom. For some reason, the authorities are not releasing any description of the stabber who murdered one person and critically wounded two others and lightly wounded several others. A woman was stabbed repeatedly in the neck. The knife man has not been apprehended, so is still at large. But for some reason, the police in the West Midlands of England have not released any description of this man. Whatever happened to all points bulletins? How are we supposed to help the police identify this person if we don't know anything, and I mean anything, about what he looks like? And of course, this has led to a day of speculation, which could be completely baseless, uh, of what the identity people think uh, this knife man uh, may have. Uh, the police have said it's not terrorism. They've said it's not hate. It sounds pretty hateful to me, but not hate, i.e. not motivated uh, by the, uh, the specificities of his victims, either their color, their sexual orientation, or anything else. Now, if both those things are true, it's, to me, inexplicable why we don't know who we are looking for or who the police are looking for. And I want to use it to expand upon uh, a thesis that I have now uh, accepted and acted on. Life in Britain's biggest cities is becoming intolerable for a whole range of reasons. I've been living in London on and off, back and forward between London and Scotland uh, since 1983. And now I'm leaving. I'm leaving with my ever-growing family because it's no longer a place that I consider safe for my children to grow up in. It's no longer a place where I can move around. Anyone who's driving in London already knows what I mean. It's not a safe place, it's not an affordable place, and that is true of New York, it's true of London, and people who can, as by the grace of God I can, are moving out. The crime on the streets in London is simply intolerable. I was living in one of the toughest boroughs in London, in Brent, we left 
Brent in a hurry, almost with the teapot still warm on the stove, when someone discharged 11 rounds of automatic weapon ammunition in the street next to us. My 13-year-old son asked me if he could go to the shop 200 yards away to buy something, and I told him no. Now, if your 13-year-old cannot walk 200 yards to the shop because the father rationally fears what might happen to the child out on the street for his trainers, for his watch, for his phone, that is becoming literally unbearable. And I want to hear from people what they think about life in the cities of Britain and the United States. And before you quote it, I always quote it. Dr. Johnson's aphorism, the man who's tired of London is tired of life. Well, I'm in no way tired of life, uh, but I do value life, particularly the life of my own children. And I'm no longer prepared to risk those lives here in the great metropolis of London. I've actually spent the last few days walking in the woods. I know I said I never would, but I was accompanied by a hearty crew uh, of uh, fit young men and women because I was completing the filming on Killing Kelly. We were reconstructing the last hours, minutes, seconds uh, of Dr. David Kelly's life. The grass was wet, it rained, I've come back with a cold, so you don't have to worry about me shouting this week, as some of you rather oddly fixate upon. This is the nearest I'll ever be to vulnerable, so come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Call me, tweet me, get involved. This is the Open University of the Airwaves. I'm the teacher, but I like when students talk back to the teacher. Call me. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. Don't bring up a false name. Come on air. Call me and let's have this matter out. Mm, let's get ready to rumble! How, how do you know the nerve to tell people to Brexit if you have not, if you're not but, telling them the repercussions? That's 2016's argument, Michael. I'm no longer arguing with you about the merits of Brexit. I'm arguing with you about democracy, about the right of the majority to have their decision, their vote implemented. This match will get red hot. Not have a referendum, no, let them I, have a referendum, let them sort it out amongst themselves. Because I want a referendum. Robert, I want <laughs> a referendum. Let me put that in capital letters. If you think this year of 2020, which is shaping up already to be an annus miserabilis for the SNP, if you think this is your year, go ahead, come on, let's have it out. But no, no, George, it's not as simple as that, right? Have you seen the documentary about Cambridge Analytica and people no. who work there? 
Have you looked at the I know global nothing about impact? them. I'm, I'm not interested but, but in precisely, them. Precisely. But I'm not interested. I'm, I'm not interested in them, Bruce. Because it's all a red herring. Just like Russiagate was a but, red but, herring. But Do you only want to hear voices that agree with you? Because if you do, you're not clever enough to be at this open university of the airwaves. In fact, you need to go back to remedial and learn something about what democracy and freedom of speech actually mean. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge where there are no tuition fees. Now, just while we're waiting for uh, John Duffy to come up, VOB says I'd go with Ventura. He's the only one actually offering an alternative to the policies and attitude that has led the United States to this point. Trump own, Trump's own MAGA slogan is an admission that his policies don't work. Hasn't he changed that slogan to CAGA, keep America great? Uh, I don't know. Uh, and by email, Aaron says, I'm writing to you as an extremely concerned parent. Children are now returning back to school, but with COVID-19 rates increasing once again, we are not prepared to send our children to school purely for their safety. Surely the common sense and logical approach would be for all parents to be given an option. A, send their children back to school. B, provide online learning for them at home and allow them to return to school when it's safe enough to do so. The majority of our close friends and family are in agreement with us in keeping their children at home whilst we see the rates increasing. What are your brief thoughts, suggestions, and maybe guidance on how to tackle this issue that's causing many parents lots of stress? We will discuss that with Dr. Ranjit in the second hour. Uh, Max says, second wave, what happened to the first one? Well, the numbers went down and now they have dramatically gone up. That feels like a second wave to me, Max. And John says, stop talking rubbish about COVID. You are defending by stating 1,000 per day that this is a real active pandemic. John, if you're going to write letters to me, you need to write them a bit more literally than that. The, uh, the grammar in this short missive is simply impossible to decipher. It is the biggest umbrella of deception. An umbrella of deception? What kind of metaphor is that? It is to hide the upcoming agendas of this totalitarian regime. What would those upcoming agendas of this totalitarian regime be, John? Why don't you call us and spell them out? Twitter, Peter, they say the Birmingham attack is not terror-related. How do they know? And Will says, I work at Brunel University. The university does not want students to wear masks in laboratories because Brunel considers students are going to feel uncomfortable. And Corinne is tuning in from Canada. Big hi to all my Canadian friends. And on YouTube, Omar says, howdy from Dubai. We made you a video star this week, Omar. And on Instagram, Ross says, hello, George, from the Philippines. That's how wide our audience goes. Let's look at the poll. Joe Biden, 16%. Donald Trump, 39%.
Jesse Ventura, 45%. You can vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Now, John Duffy uh, is a writer and activist and documentary maker. We are waiting to make a connection with him, but let me uh, tell you uh, what it is that he has done. He's produced a documentary uh, on this subject. Now, I'm going to go to the phone lines first, because Romwell is trying to get through from Alaska. We can't resist going to Alaska, can we? Uh, Romwell. No, he's in Chicago. He's in Chicago on Alaska. Uh, I'm from Chicago. I just want to tell you the, the good news. <laughs> Romwell. So, yeah, I'm here. So, yeah, I'm ready to speak with you. The kid with the fellow is to have a courage. And now it's my turn to speak to you for a young adult with autism. So, some good news about draft Jesse movement is the Alaskan Green Party put Jesse Ventura, Cynthia McKinney on as a ticket as a rejection of the party rigging against Jesse Ventura, which I'm very excited about since I'm one of the few draft Jesse advocates for Jesse Ventura. Listen, I've got several speaking on this uh, line, Chris. Can we uh, clear that up? But uh, there's more than one person talking to me there. But he was bringing us the news uh, that the Green Party in Alaska had rejected the official Green Party candidate, uh, who's, who was a rather unprepossessing guest on this show a few weeks ago, and chosen instead to put Jesse Ventura on the ballot paper in Alaska as the Green Party candidate. But the, la the, the other parts of that conversation I couldn't quite get. Now, John Duffy, as I said, is a, an author, a writer, a documentary maker, and he studied for 10 years the many mysteries of 9-11. He's not a conspiracy theorist, and neither am I. If he were, he wouldn't be here. But you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to know that there are quite a few things, very significant things, not right about the official story on 9-11, that somebody is covering something up. No better man than John Duffy to ask about it. John, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. It's a, a privilege to interview you. Your book, The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, uh, explain that title, if you would, to the audience. In what way did the watchdogs not bark? Uh, so I guess it's kind of complicated, but um, in essence, we have a variety of government institutions in this country. Uh, so we have our NSA, the National Security Agency. We have the CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, the FBI, uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, so with the 9-11 case, there's a lot of details, but uh, I guess specifically one I could give you that would show the watchdogs not barking, for instance, was uh, the National Security Agency. Uh, maintains like electronic surveillance sort of around the world. There was a particular uh, house in Sana'a, Yemen, that was owned by the father-in-law of one of the would-be 9-11 hijackers, uh, Khalid Amidar. And when 
Almidar had come to the United States in 2000 uh, along with another future hijacker, Nawaf al-Hazmi. They were living in San Diego and they made many communications back to this house in Sana'a, Yemen. Well, this house happened to be a, a phone hub, a communications hub, if you will, for the Al-Qaeda network. And the NSA was aware uh, of this house, was monitoring the uh, signals, intelligence in and out of this house. And uh, uh, the CIA actually was as well. And so they could clearly see at that time that they had two individuals uh, in the United States, in San Diego, California, communicating uh, fairly regularly with this very, very important Al-Qaeda communications hub in Yemen. And of course, uh, seemingly uh, nothing was made of that. And it's like, these are the watchdogs watching but of course the attacks then proceed and, and succeed. And were these individuals uh, attending flying school? Uh, they were, they were, they did attend flying school and then they did also, uh, you know, take English lessons and things like that. Um, and they were, it, you know, if you look at the chronology of their time in the United States, they were uh, interacting with other individuals who were uh, of suspicion, some who you know, would also end up being part of the 9-11 plot. So they were, and not only were they being watched while they were in the United States, what's very uh, important and sort of integral to our book is that they were being watched before they came to the United States. In late 1999, there was a summit in Malaysia of Al-Qaeda operatives and actors. Uh, it's called the Al-Qaeda Planning Summit, if you will. And this happened in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And uh, the U.S. intelligence services were very, very well aware of it. They were tracking people on their way there. Uh, with the assistance of Malaysian uh, intelligence, they were monitoring the meeting as it went down, taking photographs and videos outside of that meeting. And it's, it's pretty much presumed that this is the meeting in which the, uh, not only the 9-11 attack was planned, but also the attack on the USS Cole that would uh, happen in the port of Aden. Uh, and so they're watching this meeting unfold. They're watching the people coming in and out. Two of those people are Nawaf al-Hazmi and uh, Khalid al-Midar. And they uh, actually were able to get uh, a copy of al-Midar's uh, passport made, which included his US visa, uh, his multiple entry visa. And then they see them travel to the United States uh, after that and you know land in LA where they moved to San Diego. And of course, they're watching them all the way up to that, but the second they get to the United States, it's like, poof, you know, where did all this concern go? Where did the monitoring go? Yeah, I mean, uh, that opens the question, uh, and I know you've got a thousand other examples, but if we stick with this one, that opens the question of uh, whether or not the uh, watchdogs were stupid or wicked. Uh, it's a bit difficult to know which would be worse. Uh, did they fail because they were too stupid to know that people in touch with Al-Qaeda attending flying school in the United States was a potential danger? Or was there wickedness involved? Were they deliberately not uh, closing these people down, capturing these people for some nefarious purpose? So what the, our book posits and tries to uh, defend through interviews with people from FBI, CIA, NSA, the White House, the DOD, and even some anonymous sources, uh, what we postulate and try to defend is something that was brought to us by the former 
the highest counterterror official in the United States, one uh, Richard Clark, who worked for both Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. So this is the highest counterterror official in the United States at the time. And when we sat down and spoke with him in 2009, what he, again, was speculating, admittedly, uh, was that what was happening here was that within the CIA's counterterror center, so people like Kofor Black and then even the head, George Tenet, uh, they were basically seeing this as an opportunity when these individuals were coming to the United States. They were seeing it as an opportunity to uh, get intelligence within Al-Qaeda from these guys, probably with the assistance of Saudi proxies. And they didn't want the FBI to know about it because they knew that the FBI counterterror program, especially under the sort of uh, hard charging by the book, John O'Neill out of New York, would not allow this, would clamp down, would arrest these men right away and try them for crimes. And so the CIA says, look, we can't do that. These hotheads in the FBI, they'll botch it. And what we have here is a real opportunity. So what they did was try to uh, create sort of a reporting network with these guys here. And then they did not shut that operation down. And then when it became clear that it was a disaster, they did everything they possibly could to cover their own asses. I'm sorry, uh, to, to cover to cover for themselves and their actions. And they uh, and then further went on to seek more power uh, through the, uh, the administration when, you know, when the Bush administration said, well, what do we do now? It was the CIA who came to them at Camp David and said, hey, if you if you cut the chains, if you let us have all the powers that we want, you know, renditions, torture, uh, espionage that, you know, we'll, 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 we'll get these guys for you because we really know them. And our book goes on to then catalog how the people who tried to do the right thing, who people who tried to blow the whistle ended up finding themselves uh, prosecuted and people who did the wrong thing, who broke the law, who lied and covered up for themselves. They uh, climbed the, the ladder of power. For anyone who's seen the uh, television series Looming Tower, uh, this story of tough war uh, is quite familiar. Uh, the FBI, with its responsibility, constitutional responsibility, uh, to uh, defend the homeland, uh, was effectively kept out of the loop. Is that what you're saying, John? Yeah, I'm very much so. We spoke with Lawrence Wright, who wrote The Looming Tower uh, before we wrote our book. And we spoke with many of the uh, FBI agents uh, that he spoke with in, in writing his book. And it, it, it seems very clear on, on a handful of occasions, there are perfect moments, perfect moments where sharing this information from the CIA to the FBI, it's, it's right there in front of them, and the, and the CIA makes sure it doesn't happen. This happened immediately upon the, uh, the arrival of Al-Midar and al-Hazmi in the United States, when FBI agents who were detailed to the bin Laden unit at CIA, um, agents like Mark Rossini and Doug Miller, were asking for permission to send that information back to FBI counterterror, and they were denied. Uh, it happened again uh, in, in June uh, of 2001 when uh, FBI agents like Ali Soufan and Steve Bangar, who were investigating the attack on the coal, were having a, an information sharing meeting with the, uh, with the CIA, and they would not give over the names of people who uh, were, were relevant in the, in the fact that these people were all, who were planning the coal and planning 9-11, were all together uh, in the Malaysia summit. 
And there is even a more esoteric example with a, a source that had been uh, found overseas who was, was giving information to both the CIA and the FBI, but the CIA would only ask him particular questions when the FBI man was out of the room. There were plenty of opportunities for, for the information about these Al-Qaeda operatives being in the United States to be shared with the FBI, and it looks like a very, very deliberate decision not to share it. So not stupid, uh, but wicked in, uh, in effect, uh, because, sir. because it's, uh, its effect is almost impossible to compute, not just the thousands who died on the day, uh, but the millions, perhaps, who've died in the reverberations, and certainly the reverberations to come, because, of course, uh, it was a long time ago, 19 years, but the earth is still shaking around the world. It is. It is. And I mean, you have the, the poor, you know, the people around the world who've suffered physically, lost family members, lost limbs, been displaced, you know, been been pushed out of their, their home country. I mean, those are the people obviously I, I, I truly feel for. But then we also have, you know, losses of freedoms, more more intrusion, larger bureaucracy, uh, you know, more expensive bureaucracy, uh, all of these things that are knock on effects of that, you know, the, the, the torture program, the, like a total loss of international credibility. There are so many outgrowths of this that really uh, like could have and should have been avoided. Who takes political responsibility for this, John? I know, I know that no one did at the time, uh, but I mean, is it the president? Is it the, the uh, defense uh, department? Who, who uh, must be blamed in the history books at least? I mean, you know, beyond speculation for who knew what when, like if you could say for a fact, you know, it, that gets pretty hard. I, I personally think a lot of blame lies at uh, CIA Director George Tenet's feet. I think uh, the head of the NSA at the time, uh, George, uh, um, sorry, uh, Michael Hayden, should be uh, bearing some of that responsibility. I definitely think a lot belongs at the feet of, you know, uh, George Bush and Dick Cheney and their administration. Um, you know, you can't be in charge of all these people. These have these people directly working under you and that doing this and not take some of that responsibility. I think there's a lot to go around. Um, but, you know, the, the institution, the intelligence institutions in this country from the time of their existence, um, they bear a lot of, you know, they bear a lot of responsibility. But from what they've been designed to do and how they've affected it over the years, you know, the CIA themselves, just as an institution, brought up to lie, brought up to, you know, brought up to be underhanded and, and that sort of thing. It's well, Pompeo I, boasted about it recently. Well, Excuse me, what was that? Pompeo was boasting about it recently. We lied, we cheated, we robbed. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what they were, uh, the, under their belief structure, that's what they think that they are there to do. And uh, they're true believers. You have, I mean, you have to understand, just like extremists of any kind, they're true believers. They believe that when they lie, when they kill, when they assassinate, when they kidnap, when they rendition, when they torture, that they are doing it for a good reason. They think the, the ends justify the means, you know, and that's what makes them so dangerous. Where can people uh, uh, read your book? Where can people follow your work, John? 
Uh, this book can be found at, you know, any major book retailer should have it. It's available to all the major online uh, sellers. We do have a website, watchdogsbark.com, where you can find not only the book, some of the other media interviews we've done, but also uh, some of the material leading up to this book, other uh, articles we've written. So that's watchdogsbark.com. And again, the name of the book is uh, the, Watchdog, uh, the Watchdogs Didn't Bark, CIA, NSA, and the Crimes of the War on Terror. I think you're going to sell a few copies of this interview tonight. John Duffy, you deserve it. Thanks. You've done us all a service with your 10 years of study of this subject. John Duffy, the author uh, of The Watchdogs Didn't Bark. Let me take a quick break. Radio Sputnik. Tune in every Wednesday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker and John Kiriakou for a regular segment called Beyond Nuclear, where Brian and John discuss nuclear issues, including weapons, energy, waste, and the future of nuclear technology in the United States with Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste watchdog at the organization Beyond Nuclear. Listen on Wednesdays right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. We are talking 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at sputniknews.com. Hello, America. It is me, Joe Biden. I think I'm not reading a teleprompter. I'm perfectly capable of speaking for myself. Radio Sputnik. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Going great guns. If you could vote in the U.S. election, who would you vote for? A. Joe Biden. 16%. B, Donald Trump, 40%, up one. C, Jesse Ventura, 44, down one. Almost a 1,000 people have voted already. You can vote until 10 to 9 uh, English time uh, at my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Now, uh, Koan Lee is a Korean-English interpreter and translator. She grew up in Korea and currently lives in Chicago. She translated a book from Korean to English written by an activist who directly helped the former sex slaves in Korea over the last 30 years. The book is about the history of the Japanese sexual slavery system and the lives of the victims. There are only 17 of these victims left alive in Korea as of May of this year. And this is uh, the only one uh, who have reported themselves as sex slaves. Uh, out of approximately 200,000 Korean women taken, only about 230 reported 
to the Korean government. The book is called 25 Years of Wednesdays and it really is quite gripping reading. Uh, the women were treated, as the name suggests, as comfort women for the Japanese fascist army as it went about its death and destruction on a grand scale in Korea. And Cohen Lee has kindly agreed to join us. I hope she's with us now. Cohen, thank you uh, for that. It's a very harrowing story. Uh, the more harrowing uh, for the fact that no justice uh, or anything remotely approaching justice has ever been forthcoming. Uh, the Japanese state today uh, does not acknowledge these crimes, has not atoned for them, and certainly has not made reparation uh, for them. Is that true? Hello, George. Right. Thank you for having me. And uh, yes, it is true that the Japanese government has denied its responsibilities for these war crimes that they had committed um, during the war. And they um, did make a few gestures, only gestures, to uh, show the world that they are atoned and they uh, would like to resolve this issue well. However, that is not the, what the uh, victims and survivors wanted, and the victim survivors uh, refused to take those uh, offers. What were the offers, just so we can uh, dispose of them? So there were a few. So in 1965, first, uh, that was uh, under the under the uh, Korean uh, military dictatorship at the time, South Korea only. Though, and um, the Japanese government and the South Korean government made a treaty or signed on a treaty that is called the 1965. Um, treaty on basic resolutions. And there, Japan agreed to uh, pay South Korea $300 million and uh, landed $200 million for 10 years. And that money never went to the victims of the war crimes or, you know, the war in general, never went to those women. And that money actually was used for domestic um, industrial, dom domestic industrial development of South Korea at the time, which was pocketed to, pocketed by the uh, mega conglomerates that are controlling the South Korean economy right now. And after that, in the 90s, uh, Japan was pushed to make something, a deal, or um, you know, Japan was asked to do something about it because there were some international community community pressure to uh, towards Japan and they made recommendations to uh, resolve this issue so Japan provided Asian women's funds which was which they named a healing fund it's not a reparation or they never admitted the crimes that they committed they just said that we feel somewhat sorry about what happened to you so we want to you know give this money to you and that was also refused rejected from the victims and recently in 2015 there was a bilateral agreement uh, made by the governments of South Korea and Japan. And that deal was 
uh, uh, the deal was made, you know, behind the doors, um, closed behind the doors, and so quickly. The whole process was only for a couple weeks when those uh, ministers of uh, foreign ministers of Japan and South Korea met and discussed. And then they never uh, told those victim survivors what they were talking about and what they are going to agree to, with. And they suddenly announced on uh, December 28th that we agreed, Japan and Korea, we agreed to resolve this issue, the Japanese, Japanese military sexual slavery comfort women issue now. So um, Japan is paying 1 billion yen, which is 8.8 .8 US dollars at the time, and nobody knows how the calculation came from. And um, there were a number of conditions that Japan demanded, not Korea, South Koreans or the vast majority of victims demanded, but Japan demanded to stop the protest, no more mentioning this issue in the international communities, demolishing statues that's uh, commemorating these victims and war crimes, and etc. So. That um, that was the most recent one, and majority of the victims refused to take you know, the money. Now, uh, the this has been characteristic of Japan's approach: knock down the uh, statues, stop demonstrating outside our embassy. But the surviving women, uh, every Wednesday, still, even though they are in their nineties. Uh, still demonstrate yes. there, don't they? They still are doing, at this time, due to COVID, they are doing this protest virtually. However, they never stopped since uh, January 8th, 1992, since the first Wednesday demonstration uh, began. And um, many of the victims, uh, you said uh, earlier that 17 victims remain alive. However, it uh, one more a survivor passed away uh, just a, just a week ago. So as of now, it's 16 remain alive in South Korea, and many of them are on wheelchairs or hard to uh, difficult to get up or you know make a speech or anything. But they do come out and um, join the protest. And now they are doing virtually. Yeah. Now you've referred several times to a negotiation, uh, not very fruitful, but negotiation with South Korea. Uh, but of course, mm -hmm. these crimes were committed throughout Korea. Is there any effort made to uh, make reparation uh, for the victims in the North? There was, we believe that um, the, there is a main supporting organization for this uh, victim survivors, that is the Korean Council for the Women drafted, um, drafted for the Military Sexual Slavery System. And in, until, um, until 2000 or late 90s, there were uh, some communications between North and South, and uh, particularly on uh, this issue, because this is something that both sides of Korea experienced very badly, brutally, and something unresolved, something both Korea's um, regardless ideologies of both sides could agree upon. So uh, victims were uh, visiting 
and victims from the north side of Korea visited Seoul to participate in um, some, you know, Asian conference, Asian women's conference, etc. Um, and but as much as South Koreans wouldn't and don't know about how the North Korean government is doing. Um, it, it is not much known. However, when I personally met with uh, North Korean um, officials who are working at the UN, she said that their government never stopped to, you know, work on this issue, and they they are they constantly demanding just for justice for these victims, and they were actually, you know, unlike South Korean victims, South Korean victims have had to deal with and fight the South Korean government on top of the Japanese government and the international community. But at least the North Korean government is, it doesn't seem to be um, having that, uh, uh, that relationship with the victims. Uh, that's what I could say, I think. Japan has uh, quite a benign uh, reputation now in, uh, in the West. But of course, in the parts of Asia that the fascist empire conquered and raped and pillaged and murdered on a mass scale, it doesn't mm. seem quite so benign, does it? <clears throat> it doesn't. And it is actually very hard to resolve this issue because not only because it is old and, you know, it is already 75 years ago uh, when it happened and um, Japan denied, and it is not, you know, that there's, although there are so, there is so much evidence disclosed, and um, Japan just denies it. It is, uh, the, it is the Japanese presence that is very strong in the international community, so that even if, um, Victim survivors make um, speeches or give testimonies. This, this difficult things and this hard work and protests and all these. It is um, the international community makes only recommendations to Japan do something about it, and that's how uh, several attempts of just close out and wash off this history kind of gestures have been made. What, uh, finally, and I'm grateful for your time, why do you think Japan refuses to uh, even go through decent motions of uh, atoning for the crimes of Japanese fascism? Uh, they, they were rich enough to do so, uh, the, it would. Uh, they're they're always bowing and 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 scraping to each other and others. Uh, why can't they bow to the victims uh, of uh, the Japanese fascist empire? Why can't they compensate their victims? What stops them, do you think, from fully coming to terms with in the way that the German government has done? Why can't the Japanese do that? I think the, um, for the Japanese government, admission of the war crimes is something that they have to give in their, uh, what they want to do, what they have wanted to do, which is changing their peace constitution. 
um, to, so that they could have their own military. And they always have had this uh, desire, this uh, ambition to have their own military and conquer the world. And, you know, just, just like they had the fascist, um, fascist uh, uh, empire at the time, 75 years ago, and even longer. And if, um, and also realistically, I think the, um, the current government and the cabinet of the Japan, of Japan is, uh, consists of, um, sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters of class A war criminals, not all, but many of them. Uh, the um, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe also is one of the ones, and it is for them to, uh, to you know, denying, I think, themselves who they are, how they uh, grew up, and what they believe. And I think that is very strong. Very interesting. Corn Lee, thank you very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Much appreciated. Okay, Joe Biden's at 16%, Donald Trump's at 42%, up two, and Jesse Ventura at 42%, down two. It's neck and neck in the American presidential race, but not between Biden and Trump, between Trump and Jesse Ventura. 1,396 people have voted so far, and the poll closes at 8.50 p.m., London time. So you've basically got just less than an hour to get your vote in on that. You can vote on my Twitter feed at George Galloway. Now we've got lots of great guests coming up. Uh, the uh, hour has changed, uh, but the brilliance of Dr. Ranjit Brar has not. We'll be talking to him right after the news uh, because uh, we uh, have, as I said, now experienced a massive spike in British uh, cases. And then we'll be talking in the second part of the next hour about Julian Assange, whose trial, the biggest courtroom drama of the century, begins in London tomorrow. And in the final hour, we've got the Right Honourable Norman Baker, former MP, former minister and author on the travails of the British royal family. But first, let's get the news with Jamie Lowe. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. 
find us at sputniknews.com. Sputnik News. Thousands of people are gathering in the centre of the Belarusian capital Minsk for a new protest against the president. Riot police backed by water cannon and barriers have sealed off parts of the city and a number of arrests have been made with some reports of injuries. Protesters are seeking the resignation of President Alexander Lukashenko. They accuse the authorities of rigging his re-election just over a month ago, sparking a deadly mass unrest. At least four people have died and hundreds have been injured since then as the government tried to stamp out dissent. A number of opposition figures have fled the country. On Saturday, activist Olga Kovakova became the latest to say she had taken refuge in neighbouring Poland amid threats of imprisonment. Lukashenko, in power since 1994, has accused Western nations of interfering. Protesters, human rights activists and observers say riot police are brutally suppressing peaceful marches. One man has died and two other people are seriously injured following a random series of stabbings in Birmingham city centre. Five others are also injured in what West Midlands police have described as a major incident overnight and a murder investigation has been launched. One unknown male suspect has been sought, but no arrests have been made. Chief Superintendent Steve Graham told a news conference today that the public should remain alert. There is no suggestion of terrorism, gang involvement, that firearms were used, or that the stabbings were a hate crime, he said, describing it as a random attack with no clear motive, and saying no links have been found between victims. Officers and ambulance crews were called to reports of a stabbing in the city centre at 12.30am today and a number of other stabbings were reported in the area shortly after. Eyewitnesses reported as many as eight people were injured during what police described as a linked series of incidents. Britain's Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab has claimed that the UK and EU are entering the moment of reckoning over a post-Brexit trade deal and spoke of the two remaining sticking points ahead of crunch negotiations this week. Britain's Chief Brexit Negotiator David Frost will meet the EU's Chief Negotiator Michel Barnier in London this week. Asked about the talks, Raab said there were only two bones of contention left, fishing and state aid, and that the UK was only asking to be treated like any other country. Rachel Reeves, Labour's Shadow Cabinet Office Minister, claimed that a failure to secure a trade deal by the end of the year would show monumental incompetence by the government. Footballer Marcus Rashford has urged a Conservative MP to talk to families experiencing food poverty after comments made on social media. The Manchester United player who led a successful campaign to force the government to U-turn and extend free school meals to children from low-income families over the summer holidays intervened again on the issue. Kevin Hollenrake, the MP for Thurscombe Moulton, posted to social media that where they can, it's a parent's job to feed their children. Within just a few hours, the post caught the attention of Rashford. He sent a message to Holland Rake saying I would urge you to talk to families before tweeting. To this day he said I haven't met one parent who hasn't wanted or felt the responsibility to feed their children. 
More than 200,000 people have been ordered to evacuate areas of Japan threatened by an approaching storm. Typhoon Haishin is expected to intensify on Sunday, bringing heavy rain, storm surges and winds of more than 100 miles per hour. It will move past Kyushu on Sunday and is expected to make landfall on Monday in South Korea, which has raised its typhoon warning to the highest level. It comes just days after Maisak, one of the region's strongest typhoons in years. Haishin has led to the closure of factories, schools and businesses across western Japan. Hundreds of flights and train services have also been cancelled. In what some commentators have called Dom Kirk, several boats have sunk on a lake in the U.S. state of Texas during a parade to support President Donald Trump in November's election. Authorities say choppy water was likely caused by the large number of vessels moving closely together on Lake Travis near the state capital, Austin. Images showed boats with Trump campaign flags maneuvering at close quarters. Media say people had to be rescued from the water, but there were no immediate reports of injuries. The event called Lake Travis Trump Boat parade was organized on Facebook and more than 2,600 people marked themselves as having attended it. And finally, Amazon had banned foreign sales of seeds in the U.S. after mysterious unsolicited packages were sent to thousands of people. U.S. authorities have warned people not to plant the seeds, which are mostly postmarked from China, and they say could be part of a scam. According to plant experts, seeds from other parts of the world could harm local ecosystems. In July, the U.S. Department of Agriculture identified more than a dozen plant species in the packages, ranging from morning glories to mustard. It says the package were most likely part of a brushing scam when sellers send items to people without them placing orders and then post false positive customer reviews to boost sales. Last month, USDA experts analyzing some of the seeds from China found very few problems, but both countries are working jointly on an investigation into the incident. And that's the latest here on Sputnik News. I'm Jamie Lowe. Listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Trump and Jesse Ventura still locked head to head at 42%. Get voting if you want to affect that. But Joe Biden's on 16%. But he won't actually know. Uh, so uh, 1,586 people have voted so far. Now, as I said right at the beginning, there's been a dramatic surge in coronavirus cases just in the last 24 hours in Britain. Uh, it could be uh, um, just a blip. It could be that they'll go down again tomorrow or it could do that they will begin to exponentially rise as they did at the height or depth of this particular crisis. Dr. Ranjit Brar, a physician and surgeon, has talked us through this issue right from the beginning. So we wanted to get him on early this evening because this could be very portentous news. Dr. Ranjit, thank you uh, for uh, fitting us in. Um, were you alarmed as I was when you saw those numbers? George, good to be back with you. I think, uh, yes, George. I mean, if we've been looking at the antibody um, testing figures, um, then the estimates actually have been higher than the tests have been showing for some time. And we discussed that 
probably around 4,000 people um, untested uh, are, are catching the virus every day. But of course, a larger number of test positive proven cases um, indicates that the, the virus is spreading more widely within society and of course is of concern. Um, not very long ago, um, we were um, down uh, well below 1,000 cases a day. It was alarming to people when 1,000 cases was again breached. And as you say, it's gone up to close to 3,000 today uh, and from 2,000 yesterday. So it's a, it's a rapid increase. I think there are a number of reasons for it. It's clear that um, restrictions um, couldn't be maintained in an absolute lockdown. Um, and as the economy has been opened, as people are encouraged increasingly to go back to work, as the furlough scheme is being wound down, as we're being encouraged to do our bit for the country and go out and eat and be subsidised to do so, um, as there have been an increasing number of parties, uh, as the increasing number of social interactions, as sporting facilities start to come back online, and of course, as um, children go back to school, then we start to see social conditions which are much more conducive uh, to the spread of the virus. And uh, as we've remarked before, the vast majority of the population have not yet had it, uh, and therefore there is ground for it to spread. Now, uh, this has not yet resulted in a big spike in hospitalizations, the big spike in uh, deaths. Would you expect that to continue? In which case, what does that say about the virulence of the uh, of the virus at this point in time? Um, thanks, George. Well, it does seem that the the virus is is not significantly mutated in form. There's been some speculation as to why the deaths have gone down. It does seem to be overwhelmingly the case that uh, it is the younger population who are now being exposed to the virus. So, the vast majority of cases that we're seeing are in the under 40 year olds, um, and uh, the largest um, group are the under 20 year olds. And as we've noted, the, the, the peculiar feature of this virus is that um, its severity increases with age, such that those over 80 have a, have a mortality rate from catching the virus of around 15%, whereas those under 10, you know, no, no one who doesn't have very severe comorbidity has died from the virus. So there's a real spectrum of severity based upon the age. And it does seem that we have changed our behavior as a country, not just in terms of the mask wearing um, and in the overall increase in social distancing, though clearly we can't maintain everyone sitting at home forever. Um, that, that change in behavior particularly has affected those who realize that they're most susceptible. So the elderly, um, those comorbid populations with heart disease, high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, and particularly obesity, all of these um, groups, it seems, are being far more cautious than the average. And it's the relatively younger population who feel themselves reasonably to be at less threat. Uh, who are more likely currently to contract the virus. Of course, as we've commented before, what's difficult and what was essentially wrong with the strategy of herd immunity was that you can't um, really contain the virus. Once it becomes the case that large numbers of people within society have this virus or other vi viruses, um, it's very hard to limit it to a particular demographic. There'll be increasing points of contact with those who are vulnerable and of course, I'm happy that the, the death rates are currently so low. 
Um, but it is a real risk if numbers increase that that that, that situation does not stay uh, uh, the case and we see an increase in deaths once again, George. Now, uh, I was asked earlier, uh, but I was going to ask you anyway, uh, because my own children are going back to school this coming week, as are the children of many. Um, what, did the, what does this spike mean for the back-to-school controversy? I mean, I, I personally want my children to be back at school. My children are back at school. I'm delighted for them that, that they're back at school. Um, I think there's, it's genuinely the case that our classrooms are overcrowded. If you look at the difference between the uh, independent or private schools and uh, public uh, or, or state schools, comprehensive schools, as my children go to comprehensive schools, our class sizes are roughly double those of, of um, privately funded education. And that's one of the major assets that they have. So I, I would personally love to see a reduced class size as a general demand for education for the benefit of all of our children, irrespective of the pandemic. Uh, but clearly, um, if there are outbreaks within schools, and, and there have been outbreaks within schools, but not a huge number, um, measures will be taken to close down those particular sections and schools affected. I think that the numbers are sufficiently low that it's reasonable for our children to go back to school. Uh, and, and as I say, mine, mine are. I, I, it's a tremendously stifling um, socially uh, for them not to be back at school. However, you know, do, do I think overall that we're doing a very good job at, at controlling the virus? I mean, I think if you look, for example, I, I was reading the, the Times today and they were saying that, look, Wuhan, in Wuhan, where we were told the virus spread from, certainly where it was discovered, doesn't seem that it actually came from Wuhan now, um, but certainly where the virus was first discovered, their public health measures were, uh, you know, so well um, tailored to their situation throughout that nation um, that now the Wuhan football team has gone back. They have full sports facilities. Uh, they've basically got completely normal running of society, um, whereas we have gone through a great deal of social dislocation without getting the virus under control. And it's the basic public health measures that we've discussed, you know, perhaps ad nauseum time and again, the adequate isolation, the adequate tracing, the adequate testing. We've got large numbers of tests, but we're not good still at um, contact tracing and managing to find the people who have the virus and isolate them from the rest of the community in a safe way, you know, which doesn't uh, you know, affect their freedoms, but keeps them taken care of and safely away from spreading it to the rest of the population. So all of those measures, um, really, that, that China, Vietnam and other countries, the Koreas, were able to put into effect were due to really good mobilization of the health resources and economic resources of the country, putting the lives of the people first, which has allowed us to get back them to get back to normal without the, uh, the advent of a vaccine. Um, and speaking of vaccines, perhaps we could have a, a, a quick word about um, the Sputnik uh, vaccine, because I think there yeah, is more. I, I was just about to uh, turn to that. The Sputnik is now orbiting the world. 20 countries have ordered it. Uh, it has, it's in stage three, uh, but all the reports are giving it a clean bill of health, at least everything I've read. Yeah, and I, I, I was very encouraged by the fact that the uh, phase one and phase two trials have now been published in The Lancet just a couple of days ago. So I was able to read them. They're accessible in English. They're accessible, therefore, to the wider medical um, community. And it's an extremely 
thorough vaccination based on an adenovirus vector. So adenovirus is essentially a virus similar to the common cold. So a safe vector, two different adenoviruses, because this the, the basic um, um, uh, premise for the virus will be that you'll get its first dose. And then on day uh, 21, you'll get a, no, sorry, day 14, you'll get a second dose uh, of the, of the uh, of vaccine with a slightly different uh, adenovirus vector so that you don't get cross-reactivity between those two vectors. So essentially, a, a, a dose and then a boost dose given shortly after. And the levels of immunity um, were absolutely comparable to the population who had actually caught coronavirus and recovered uh, in a similar time frame. So essentially, the virus does induce a state of immunity without having the primary disease and the ill effects of the disease of those who have recovered from the coronavirus. So that is incredibly um, uh, optimistic. Um, they themselves, as their conclusion, say, look, the safety profile was excellent and, and the safety profile was absolutely, you know, the, the side effects of this were things you expect to see with in any standard vaccination that people will be familiar with. And that's in terms of a little bit of pain at the injection site, having a, a temperature, um, having some aches and feeling a little bit of, of weakness and be, being unwell for a day or two. So, you know, all the standard um, things that one might expect with any adenovirus vaccination. Um, I think they, they have themselves said that they were able to accelerate their uh, development of the vaccine, both in terms of the face of the, the emergency of the pandemic that they were facing, but also in terms of their experience at the Gamaleya Institute, um, treating, as we've said, Ebola um, and previous SARS um, viruses. So I think they've used all their expertise. They've come up with what looks like to, to be a very effective vaccine. Uh, and they are they published phase one and phase two. And they have therefore, in, in, a, in, in accordance with the uh, emergency laws, which were passed in August uh, by the Russian Federation, have been allowed to uh, issue the virus to a wider population um, in an accelerated manner, but simultaneously and as part of uh, a, a wider pharma cognizance, a, a wider uh, trial, uh, a phase three trial, as you say, and they're planning to do that initially at 40,000 volunteers. So essentially, it's an accelerated program of development, which looks extremely promising and is being rolled out um, across Russia, particularly to, a, to a, um, uh, the high-risk population. Yeah. The caveats of the trial, um, but many of the participants initially were from a relatively young, relatively healthy um, military background. Some of them, there was a preponderance of males in the trial. All of those things are reasonable, but there's no reason to suspect that that would... Um, uh, really have a, have a huge impact upon the efficacy uh, of the vaccine. But anyway, uh, more data will be forthcoming. But it's fantastic news, I think, that it, it essentially shows a way through the pandemic, certainly for those countries who adopt the vir uh, th this, uh, uh, this vaccination. And I think that's tremendously encouraging for the world uh, to have developed this so soon. Good news out of Russia. Who'd have thunk it? Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Ranjit Brar, the Moats medic. Uh, now, I uh, better take a call uh, from Peter, because he's not happy about me on coronavirus. That's why he's up next. Go ahead, Peter. Hello, George. Hi. <clears throat> um, I just noticed over the last few weeks that um, I just felt like you were, you were, you know, maybe months now, just stifling any sort of talk about uh, stifling the origins of this. Uh, sti stifling except... Except you're the first call on immediately. That's how stifling well, I mean, we are, Peter. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the, the, the YouTube chat earlier, and it's saying, um, you know, you, you, we don't want you talking about this. And, I, and I, I do remember you saying, you know, a couple of 
maybe a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months, I can't remember. But you're saying, you know, you didn't want to talk about conspiracy theories about it. No, no, uh, 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 I don't want to talk about conspiracy theories because they're dangerous. Uh, but that's not stifling uh, genuine debate. That's why the floor is now yours. On you go. Well, I mean, just, you know, when we're talking about <clears throat> these things, you know, you've just had a, a guy on about 9-11. Um, and even with the, the, the COVID-19 thing, the origins of coronavirus, you have Whitney Webb on. And, you know, she's done great work over the last few months and years, sort of. And, you know, there's a lot of questions still to be answered about, you know, where this all came from and, and who is behind it all, ultimately. Okay, and, um, well, don't keep talking about the questions. Ask them. Put them. Well, I mean, since I spoke to you last time, I've uh, I've, I've took this up quite keenly, and uh, I've done a lot of looking about and research. And you know, some people might say, "Oh, well, you know, you're just getting stuff off the internet." But, yeah, um, I probably would have. Yeah. Well, there, I mean, there we go, George. I mean, I don't no, know no, you're admitting it. it. Research on the internet. Have you got any background in medicine or science? Well, I don't think that's the way to look at it, George. No? Well, go on. I'm not stopping you. Go on. Well, I mean, look, you know, looking at how I see the top of the tree of this, how much thought or, you know, looking at the, the, the work of the, the Rockefeller lockstep thing and also the American thing that you'll have saw in the John Pilger documentary about the vision for 2010 and 2020. How much have you, have you looked at that? No, I know nothing about Rockefeller's lockstep program or John Pilger's 2010 or 2020. So why don't you tell us? Well, it's a it's a thing that calls for a power grab uh, on the back of a, a pandemic. And you know, I, I think that we need to open our eyes to the the Malthusian aspects of oligarchy. Considering that the Rockefellers, you know how powerful these people have been in the American political game over the last 100 years, were the first billionaires. And, it, you know, it seems to me that they have questions to answer. For Tell us like what the questions are. Stop well, hinting darkly and tell us what the questions are. Well, there's, there's two things straight away that, that ring alarm bells for me. One is the meningitis vaccine program. It's well documented, and you can find it written up. That was ran in Kansas, in Fort Riley, before the Spanish flu broke out. And that was basically a meningitis vaccine program where they were taking vaccines out of horses that were riddled with flu <clears throat> and trying to immunize soldiers against something. And then soldiers seemed to follow, and the next thing... They're being sent to France. And there's also horses dying on the way to France, you know? And as we fast forward to 2013, there's an NGO that's partnered with Rockefellers that seems to have found a virus 96% the same as coronavirus, which is nearer than the SARS-1 virus. There's also elements of our own, um, I'll just say the Wellcome Trust, who seem to be involved with this as well, uh, a certain knight of our realm who 
was in Ho Chi Minh City when they found this virus. They very quickly became the head of the, the welcome setup. Uh, he, he set up CEPI, which I invite you to go and have a look at. Uh, in, in Davos, so that tells you what you need to know about that. It doesn't, uh, none, none of these, all you're doing is throwing out names and uh, places and inferring that that tells me all I need to know, but so far, and you've been on some minutes, Peter, you haven't actually told me anything. What is like your point? What's your point? Well, this is, this is, what my point is, is that this is a big thing, like 9-11, that you probably couldn't describe in a few minutes, but all the same... Is your, is you know, your point that the virus has been caused by vaccination? Well, I do believe that if, you know, if you look at October the 10th, you'll see that all NATO personnel, including the, the, the soldiers in America, were given a vaccination. Some of them went to Wuhan, and I do believe there's something that we should be looking at, because the same vaccination companies that gave them vaccinations are now making a fortune out of the vaccines. Who's making a fortune out of the vaccine? There's no vaccine. There's only a Russian vaccine. Well, you know, we, we know that um, also linked to the Ho Chi Minh thing that I spoke about a minute ago, there is an Oxford vaccine. So the, the guy that was running the Oxford University thing in the Ho Chi Minh City, where they found this 96% the same strain in 2013, you know, that is our British vaccine, the Glaxo but vaccine. But there is no British vaccine. It hasn't been developed yet. It hasn't been developed yet. But so nobody's making a fortune out of it. Well, what, I mean, what did Sanofi and GSK sign up? All you're to doing is throwing out names. This is classic internet research. Uh, find a Jewish name, throw it out. Uh, find a Davos, throw it out. Bilderberg, you're maybe coming to. Uh, the, the, none of these things establish anything in my mind. Now, I was ready to listen to you, but you've been a terrible disappointment, Peter. I'm very sorry uh, to hear it. Uh, Ranji is still on the line. Uh, let's see if he can uh, uh, respond uh, to that. Ranjit, uh, sorry, uh, I have little patience. You've got a better bedside manner than me. Uh, what... What would you say to Peter? Um, it, it, it was a little bit of a, a, a damp squib, I'm afraid, George. I was expecting to hear um, something a little more substantial. It's very hard to answer when no real no. Uh, direct evidence or even coherent kind of story or theme is put together. There are more coherent stories and themes. Normally they're centered around, uh, around Bill, Bill Gates. So what, what you do hear, you used to hear very consistently, is that because, uh, you know, slightly before this pandemic spread out, uh, Bill Gates has been involved in virus um, simulation modeling. And there was something called uh, event, what was it, event 101, event, uh, event um, I think it was event 106. I'm not sure. They, they had essentially an exercise in Baltimore where they simulated a pandemic spreading out and they, and they predicted it might be a coronavirus in, in line with the fact that there had been MERS and SARS. So on the basis of that, you hear a, a, a lot of conspiracy theorists. But again, nothing concrete, nothing that you can kind of put your finger on. There are different, you know, either the virus is a bioweapon or it doesn't exist. And sometimes you find it's people who simultaneously hold the view that it doesn't really exist and it's not a threat and it is a bioweapon. So why would we be using a bioweapon that doesn't actually have any any danger or threat? It is very, it's 
is very difficult to determine. So, you know, anything where, that isn't clearly understood. So without without knowledge, I think ignorance spreads. Um, clearly, the pandemic is affecting many people's lives. And I think the fact that despite the fact that there are many deaths to many, many people, it's essentially harmless. It's something that's quite difficult for people to get their, their heads around sometimes. So, you know, there's an understandable uh, disquiet uh, in our societies about the level of social control, about the levels of surveillance, uh, about very real social phenomena, about the levels of unemployment, about economic problems. So there's real social discontent. I think without uh, a strong understanding of the causes of those social discontents, all kinds of half-baked theories form in people's mind. And certainly the internet is rife with this kind of speculation. On top of that, I think we genuinely do have um, agents of disinformation who, who spread disinformation throughout the population in order to keep them confused and, and pliable. So there's a whole mixture of real and imaginary phenomenon which go into making up a lot of confusion uh, about the coronavirus. Um, certainly that particular um, caller, uh, it's very difficult to answer them on the basis they didn't really uh, say much, George. Well, I certainly couldn't put it any better than that magisterial. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ranjit. Uh, poll one, if you could vote in the US election, who would you vote for? Joe Biden, 16. Donald Trump, 43. Up one. He's moved ahead. Jesse Ventura, 41. Down one. You can still vote on my Twitter feed for the next 22 minutes or so, though. 1,827 of you already have. So you can do that on my Twitter feed at George Galloway. 60-second break. Radio Sputnik. Let's play a game and I'll ask you yes or no questions. Ready? Okay then. Sick and tired of hearing the same old voices on the wireless? Are you looking for an alternative opinion to the mainstream media? Do you have a thing for a Scottish accent? If your answer is no to one or more of these questions, then you need the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Listen, watch, and share the fastest-growing political program in the world! talk shows join our faculty of legends contributors and callers everyone is welcome that was the week that was this is where i look back at the seven days in history which shaped or some might say distorted our world and this was certainly a momentous week this is the week of 9 11 as you heard earlier when the twin towers in new york were brought down by hijackers another plane blew into the pentagon and brave passengers resisted the Saudi-born terrorists, and brought a fourth plane down short of its target. Sadly, none of the passengers on the four planes survived. We talked about the horrors of 9-11 earlier and how it unleashed the so-called war on terror, which continues to this day. It didn't fundamentally alter U.S. foreign policy. It only made it more aggressive. It still kept on supporting anti-democratic regimes, 
as it had done in 1973 on another 9-11, when the CIA were instrumental in orchestrating the overthrow of President Salvador Allende of Chile, the world's first democratically elected Marxist head of state. He died in a revolt led by the armed forces, but designed in Washington on 9-11, 1973. On this day in 1620, the Mayflower departed Plymouth with, uh, that's in England of course, with 102 pilgrims and about 30 crew for what they called the New World, discovering in due course America. Of course, it had long been discovered by the people who lived there. The jury's still out on whether that was a fruitful voyage, with all due apologies and respect to our American audience. On this same day in 1997, Diana, Princess of Wales, was buried at the end of an unprecedented week of mourning. Her two grown-up sons, not just her heirs, but the heirs to the throne, continued to wage war on each other through the media, and we'll be talking uh, to the Right Honourable Norman Baker about that later in the show. On September the 7th in 1940, in the Second World War, the German Air Force unleashed a wave of heavy bombing raids on London, killing hundreds of civilians and injuring many more. It was the start of what we came to call the Blitz. Still in World War II, Italy surrendered on the 8th of September 1943. And in 1976, on September 9th, the Chinese leader Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao, died. This was a man who really changed history. It was on the 12th of September in 1977 that the leader of the Black Consciousness Movement in South Africa, Steve Biko, died in police custody. He was, of course, murdered. On the same day in 1997, Scotland voted decisively for home rule in a referendum on how they wanted the country to be governed. I was one of the leaders of the devolution movement. Regrets? I have a few. And on the same day in 2003, one of the greatest legends in popular music, Johnny Cash, died of cancer. The family name of Cash can actually be traced back almost a thousand years to Scotland, to the ancient kingdom of Fife, which might one day seek its own independence. He was actually christened J.R. Cash. Apparently initials were common as first names in Arkansas in the 1930s, later copied by one of the Ewings in Dallas in the soap opera. Uh, the Johnny replacement was an invention which he was forced to take when the US Air Force recruiters refused to accept his given name, J.R. Not a lot of people know that. These were just some of the seminal events in history in this week. Now, how's my poll doing? 1,827 votes so far, and Donald Trump is still ahead. Let's talk to Walter in Blackpool about 9-11. Go ahead, Walter. 
Uh, well, uh, George, good evening. Thanks for having me. Um, the, um, you, you talked about conspiracies earlier in relation to 9-11. However, there are a number of highly knowledgeable and expert organizations which have, in fact, challenged the official version of 9-11. Mm. And one of them is Architects and Engineers for 9-11 truth. Now, they have brought the matter before a grand jury in New York on the basis that the only explanation for the way in which the towers came down and the speed with which they came down was by controlled demolition. And as I said, these are people who have put their careers, and I would say in some cases even their safety on the line, in order to challenge this, um, the official version. Uh, it is a fact that no high-rise building has ever collapsed from fires. Uh, there was that um, hotel in, in Madrid, which burned for well over 24 hours, and obviously the damage was great, but it never actually structurally came down. Now, you don't dispute that the two planes hit the towers? I've got my doubts about that. Because I watched it happening live. Uh, there are all things, all kinds of things you can do with video, hologram techniques, etc. Uh, Walter, you've let yourself down there. Uh, I was literally watching it live on television on several stations as the second plane hit the towers. Uh, uh, have you heard of Dr. Jim Fetzer? No. Well, um, he has analyzed this, and the thing is that how, how can... Uh, an aeroplane cut through a strong building, uh, one of the strongest buildings in the world, uh, World Trade Center 1 and 2, like a knife going through butter. Well, I'm, I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you if you disputed uh, whether the planes struck the building. I didn't expect your answer. That's true. Uh, but uh, I'm afraid it casts a bit of a pall over the rest of your case. Because I was going to ask you, if the two planes did strike the buildings, what would be the point of a controlled demolition? If the point was a provocation to pave the way to war, none of which were necessary, by the way, uh, then why would you have the belt and braces of flying two aeroplanes into the two buildings, but also uh, sewing them with dynamite uh, to bring them all down? Why would you need to do that? That would seem to me excessive well you can you can have a combination of both you can have a combination of planes flying into the uh, two buildings you can also uh, have uh, pre-planted explosives in the building i know you can but what why would you do that well but the, the the planes would be a cover for the controlled demolition it would be claimed that because the planes hit the, the buildings, that that was the reason why, the, or the only reason, why the buildings uh, collapsed. Now, there's a Dutch, there's a Dutch uh, demolition expert, Danny Yowenko. Um, he, uh, he also came to the conclusion that the only way in which the buildings could have uh, come down uh, is by controlled demolition. And he was one of the leading experts on controlled demolition. Yeah, now, no, I he, know there's I, a lot of uh, people uh, think that, and uh, um, I, I know that they are oftentimes people who are in that business. Uh, but I'm in the political business. And so the question for me is, why? Why would George Bush's government or his intelligence agencies want to commit this 
enormous crime which, if discovered, would see them all in the electric chair and the entire democratic system of the United States destroyed. Why? So they could invade Iraq. They could have invaded Iraq by sending out some envelopes full of white powder and found that as a Kazos belly. Why do you think, Walter, they would do this? Sites were set, of course, first of all, on Afghanistan, uh, because of the, um, uh, well, first of all, because the Taliban had been far too successful in eliminating or at least reducing the opium uh, trade. But, but why would you need to do all of that to justify invading Afghanistan? Well, they, they in the United States, well, no, they don't need a cover. They don't need a cover in Venezuela. They didn't need a cover to uh, attack the Iranian uh, general. Why would they need such a dramatic cover uh, to do something as, frankly, mundane to the American public as flying over and attacking Afghanistan? The reason is that uh, they wanted an international coalition to uh, participate in the invasion of Afghanistan, and they succeeded on the basis of the emotional reaction to 9-11. But why did they need that uh, international coalition? Well, <laughs> they didn't have it in Iraq, but they went ahead anyway. Yeah, um, well, obviously in Afghanistan, um, it was very convenient for them to, as I said, use the emotional pull of 9-11 and to get this international coalition to invade. Well, I'm asking you why they needed an international coalition. Well, <laughs> Afghanistan was a Stone Age country with a Stone Age military uh, that the United States could obliterate uh, very easily from the sky. Well, as I said, they needed some kind of moral justification. They, don't, they didn't have a moral justification for the Vietnam War. Well, they they invoked all manner of uh, treaties uh, with uh, South Vietnam to justify uh, intervention in, in Vietnam. I'm, so, I'm amazed that a man of your intelligence thinks that the United States needs a moral cover to commit its crimes around the world, because I could spend the rest of the show going through all of those crimes, none of which had a moral cover. Iraq, for example, um, you will remember that both Bush and Blair were forever referring to 9-11 uh, before the invasion of Iraq to justify it. No, so, the, the reason for attacking Iraq was weapons of mass destruction. Yes, but Blair was forever justified. He, one of his favorite tricks was to say, well, I realized that after 9-11, uh, the world was a totally different place. Yeah, I, I, that's true. Was, that, that sly true. way he has. No, that's true. But the United States didn't need Britain to help it invade Iraq, did it? Well, again, I think it needed just to go in on its own. Uh, would have been a bit too obvious. No, so they needed a poodle. They needed a poodle like Blair to, to, to help him. You're uh, overestimating them if you think they needed a moral cover of any kind or any poodle of any kind. Walter, it's been interesting uh, talking to you. Thanks for your call. Uh, anyone is uh, entitled to call here and lay out their views, and at least you did so forthrightly and clearly. Um, social uh, media comments. Ben says, how can it be a democracy when there's no choice who you can vote for? Stephen says, what real sound policies has Trump implemented? Americans don't get a good deal on health. Where's the USA's NHS? 
Well, certainly not in Joe Biden's pocket. And on Facebook, Ron says, South Korea, pardon me, was a military dictatorship until 1990 or so. I'm not sure why we fought to support that. I'm even more confused about, about why we care about a conflict between two countries that are occupied by the same foreign military. I smell the USA again. And Lee says, I found a knife lying on the pavement in King's Cross this morning. People just walking past it as if it was normal. I had to. I phoned the police. I'm going to leave once my course is finished. <clears throat> and Georgie says, so many COVID-19 deniers laughing in my face when I truthfully tell them that my good friend died of it. And most of my friends and colleagues have either been hospitalized by it or very poorly at home with it. Many had false negative results, but have antibodies. Well, ask uh, Professor Michael Rosen if coronavirus exists, I dare you. And on YouTube, Gene says, what about Sweden? No lockdowns, and they're fine, but they're not fine, Gene. You really need to get out more, get off your uh, usual internet uh, um, sources. Sweden has a vastly higher death rate than its surrounding neighbors. And Michael says, people are voting Trump to break the political establishment that the Clintons installed in American politics. And Rene on Facebook says, too many confusing messages about COVID-19, and especially from the medical professionals. No confusing messages from our Dr. Ranjit. Now, comments on the poll. Lars says, any sane person should vote for Jesse Ventura. Ken says, I would vote for Donald Trump. Ventura's a pretty good choice too. Biden should just retire. Oh, I think he retired about 6 p.m. Uh, Christina says, none of them, if I'm honest, but better the devil you know until the right strong flamboyant candidate appears. I'm not available. I wasn't born there. I'm no fan of American politics or their world domination antics. And Aiden says, all day, Trump, I'd rather have a friend in the White House than a man who, that wants to put his closest allies at the back of the queue. And on email, Mushaba says, I live in Brent, as you did. I'd like to move out as well, due to crime, expense, and so on. However, due to work and family commitments, I can't. I suspect there are many people in a similar situation. For most working-class people, options are very limited, sadly. We are stuck. What can we do? And Tony says, I read today that laws are being passed in Westminster by default if no one objects to them within a specified time. As a former MP, what's your view on parliamentary business being carried out that way? Parliament is a farce, the longest running farce in the West End. And Twitter, uh, Chris says, George, you keep talking about the increase in cases, but even the BBC admitted that the very tests being used are not reliable. Wake up, we're being played on this. Who's playing you, Chris? Is it the doctors? Is Dr. Ranjit playing you? Is Cuba playing you? China playing you? Vietnam playing you? Am I playing you? You people drive me to distraction. Let's take a quick break.
Tough questions are the most powerful weapon we have. As long as you have questions, we'll keep asking. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Trapped in mainstream media? Join the revolution with mother of all talk shows. Has been instrumental in making brain and heart of people stronger, like kettlebell for mind. Don't be brainwashed, CC, and open mind to new way of thinking. If you don't know how, George will teach you. If you won't learn, he will make you. <laughs> Speak to Comrade Galloway if you think you're hard enough on the mother of all talk shows. Radio Sputnik. The mother of all talk shows. With George Galloway. The world is our classroom. And you're welcome to sit in and join the seminar. Okay, you've got three minutes to vote. If you could vote in the U.S. election, who would you vote for? A, Joe Biden, 16%. B, Donald Trump, 43%. C, Jesse Ventura, 41%. 2,017 votes so far. You've got two and a half minutes if you want to affect that outcome. Please vote on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Now, uh, the most significant uh, courtroom drama of this century uh, begins tomorrow in the Old Bailey. Uh, you'll know if you've been following this show over the years uh, that we fly the flag for Julian Assange, the greatest journalist and publisher uh, of our era, a world historic figure whose work will be remembered forever. Unfortunately, if the court case goes the wrong way, we may never see Julian Assange again, and we may never see any further work from him. Because if it goes the wrong way, and he is sent into the maw of the US injustice system, he will disappear for the rest of his life, for the rest of all of our lives. Uh, one of the campaigners who has been uh, stalwart in pressing the importance of this case is Dr. Deepa Driver, who's an academic and a trade unionist, a member of the National Executive Committee of UCU, the University and College Union. And Dr. Deepa joins us now uh, in London. Doctor, thank you for doing so. Uh, just sketch for us what's happening tomorrow. How long is it going to last? And most importantly, how are you feeling about how it's going to go? Firstly, George, I'd like to thank you and um, those of your viewers who support Julian. It's a very, very difficult time for his family and for supporters because uh, not only has Julian suffered 10 years of arbitrary detention, as the UN Special Rapporteur puts it, he's now in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison. And tomorrow a trial will start, There's, um, which the first part of which happened in February, a couple of weeks in February. 
And now we will have four further weeks at the Old Bailey this time. And um, the trial will seek to come to a decision about whether to extradite Julian to the US, where he faces 175 years um, in a US supermax. Once he gets there, the situation is absolutely uh, horrendous. He will be put under something they call, euphemistically call, special administrative measures, um, which are essentially these, they're called SAMs. And what happens under these SAMs is neither you nor your lawyer can speak to the outside world, which is essentially confines you to the bowels of a maximum security prison where neither you nor your lawyers can speak to the press, neither, no information can come out about you. And essentially, it's an even worse form of breaking Julian down that they're going for. And we know from the torture that Chelsea Manning experienced, where she was locked up in a small cage when she was originally uh, found out and then further ill-treated and tortured, um, that the US forces are absolutely brutal. And their intention, and this is something that um, Juan Passarelli, who is one of the WikiLeaks people, said the other day, is, is not to set a chilling precedent through the persecution of Julian Assange, because that chilling precedent has already been set. Unlike you, most of the mainstream commentators have, until very recently, been extremely afraid to say anything about the case. And even lawyers and judges in the UK are only now waking up to how horrendous the treatment of Julian has been. So thank you for allowing me to come here and make his case. Now, uh, the, the process to date has been uh, deeply flawed. Uh, I could go on, so could you, uh, for the rest of the evening about the abuse of process uh, in this case uh, from the choice of judge uh, who should never have been placed in charge of this case uh, to the failure to allow the prisoner uh, to have proper access to his lawyers, not even allowed to sit with them in the courtroom, uh, being strip searched umpteen times every day that he goes to court, being exposed to a coronavirus uh, uh, epidemic in the prison, which has cut down warders and prisoners and led to his virtual total isolation whilst being untried, uh, not in prison for any crime, uh, being held there pending an extradition hearing. Uh, so this one week, uh, this one uh, case, three weeks, is not going to be the end of it, is it? Uh, because every one of those abuses of process that I mentioned is uh, subject to appeal. Well, it is, it, whichever way the case goes, it is likely that the case will go to appeal. But the reality is, when somebody has ex been exposed to torture for such a prolonged period of time in such a, an evil and horrendous way, we don't know when their body gives up. And this is something that Dr. Swarasanj, um, an international 
grouping of doctors have been trying to make the point about, which is that nobody knows the effects of prolonged psychological torture on the body. Julian, for example, has currently is in a lot of pain because he has a frozen shoulder. He's got um, an untreated um he he had an untreated tooth for a very long time, and anybody who's had tooth pain knows what that's like. He's He has a chronic lung condition. You can hear him coughing every time he comes to court and um, has to say a few words. He so, so Julian cannot be the martyr for free speech. He has a young family, much like yours, George. He's got a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And... He is a man who's being tormented every day. Those of us who have been in lockdown know how hard it is to be without association. And people in the prison, including Julian, are under lockdown 23 and a half hours a day. This is an extremely intelligent, articulate, um, hugely skilled man. And for him to be treated in this way, for the first three months that he was in the prison, they lost his glasses lost his glasses and couldn't find them. Um, you know, the Irish prisoners, of course, um, know of this kind of humiliating and uh, horrible treatment that people have endured. Um, he, for a long time, um, Julian has been deprived of his papers, for example. He's going into the hearing tomorrow without having met his lawyers and without having seen some of the papers. So he's he's fighting for his life without even knowing what the other side is putting in front of him. So his lawyers aren't able to take instructions. Since February and until very recently, his lawyers weren't even able to properly converse with him. So this is a an utter short trial. Not only this, Julian's privileged conversations with his with his lawyers, with his physicians, have been spied upon. He is um He's been subject to the most horrendous vilification and smearing. And what this does to an individual, he, you know, he's had people say, oh, he's having mental health issues. If you kick somebody in the stomach and then say, oh, they have a stomach issue, then, you know, that's that's the equivalent because essentially he's being tortured. Well, doctor, and uh, this, uh, let's uh, pause for a moment on the spying. In any decent jurisdiction, deserving of the name of a justice system, this one abuse alone would invalidate the entire proceedings. That the other side in the case, the US government, has had now for years uh, in its possession the privileged conversations between Julian and his lawyers. This makes a fair trial completely impossible. It makes it a farce. Indeed. And, you know, not only do we have that problem in terms of the U.S. system, you also have a problem here at Declassified UK. Mark Curtis and Matt Kennard and others have reported how the judge presiding over Julian's case has serious and material conflicts of interest, including um, conflicts of interest in relation to her son, including conflicts of interest in relation or at least perceived conflicts of interest in relation to herself and her husband. And these kinds of conflicts of interest would require a judge to recuse themselves in in any other case, as far as I can see. And I'm a, a lay observer like any other citizen. I would expect that at least in Britain, Julian would um, get 
due process. But even here, there is no chance of him getting a fair trial. And how can he be fit to stand trial in this condition? So you're absolutely right, George. You know, on every single ground, this case should have been thrown out long ago. And it's very clearly politically motivated. And Any chance of Trump pardoning him? Um, it is the Trump administration that has gone after him. So um, one of the things that has been made clear in various discussions is that although, you know, Obama himself is a war criminal in terms of drone warfare, but the Obama administration didn't intend to go after him because they thought that if they could, if they prosecuted him, they would have to go after the New York Times. But the Trump administration has been a lot more aggressive and has um, taken steps which criminalize journalism in a way that is completely unthinkable. So, no, I'm not holding my breath for Trump to pardon him. Well, if he's, if he's watching tonight, President Trump, no good yes, can come of this. No good can come of it. Uh, I'll not waste my breath appealing to the judge in the British courtroom. Uh, I take my hat off, Dr. Depa, to you and all your fellow campaigners. Everyone will be outside the court uh, tomorrow. Uh, what time is it at? The trial starts at 10 a.m., George. There's only four spaces, as far as I know so far, for the public, which means people will be queuing from before 4 a.m. in order to be able to get in. Yeah. But there'll be a protest, so, there'll be a gathering outside? From 9 a.m. From 9 a.m. At the and, Old Bailey. Uh, Dr. Deepa Driver, God bless you and thanks, and may God bless all of your efforts. Thanks very much for joining us. Time for the news, though, with Jamie Lowe. Curious about our curriculum? Have something to say? Then call us now to join the debate on the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Tune in every Tuesday to Loud and Clear for a regular segment called False Profits, a weekly look at Wall Street and corporate capitalism, where we talk about the big economic issues of the week from the point of view of working people, the poor, and the U.S. position in the global economy. Join us this Tuesday and every Tuesday with financial policy analyst Daniel Sankey right here on Radio Sputnik. It's time to double down with Max and Stacy. Yeah, double down. We're talking markets, finance, business, economics, ka-ching, bling, just about everything money-related on Sputnik. It's called Double Down. We're asking, are dead cats bouncing or have fundamentals changed? That's this week on Double Down. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com.
Radio Sputnik News. Thousands of people are gathering in the centre of the Belarusian capital Minsk for a new protest against the president. Riot police backed by water cannon and barriers have sealed off parts of the city and a number of arrests have been made with some reports of injuries. Protesters are seeking the resignation of President Alexander Lukashenko. They accuse the authorities of rigging his re-election just over a month ago, sparking a deadly mass unrest. At least four people have died and hundreds have been injured since then as the government tried to stamp out dissent. A number of opposition figures have fled the country. On Saturday, activist Olga Kovakova became the latest to say she had taken refuge in neighbouring Poland amid threats of imprisonment. Lukashenko, in power since 1994, has accused Western nations of interfering. Protesters, human rights activists and observers say riot police are brutally suppressing peaceful marches. One man has died and two other people are seriously injured following a random series of stabbings in Birmingham city centre. Five others were also injured in what West Midlands police have described as a major incident overnight and a murder investigation has been launched. One unknown male suspect has been sought, but no arrests have been made. Chief Superintendent Steve Graham told a news conference today that the public should remain alert. There is no suggestion of terrorism, gang involvement, that firearms were used, or that the stabbings were a hate crime, he said, describing it as a random attack with no clear motive and saying no links have been found between victims. Officers and ambulance crews were called to reports of a stabbing in the city centre at 12.30am today and a number of other stabbings were reported in the area shortly after. Eyewitnesses reported as many as eight people were injured during what police described as a linked series of incidents. Britain's Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab has claimed that the UK and EU are entering the moment of reckoning over a post-Brexit trade deal and spoke of the two remaining sticking points ahead of crunch negotiations this week. Britain's Chief Brexit Negotiator David Frost will meet the EU's Chief Negotiator Michelle Barnier in London this week. Asked about the talks, Raab said there were only two bones of contention left, fishing and state aid, and that the UK was only asking to be treated like any other country. Rachel Reeves, Labour's shadow cabinet office minister, claimed that a failure to secure a trade deal by the end of the year would show monumental incompetence by the government. Footballer Marcus Rashford has urged a Conservative MP to talk to families experiencing food poverty after comments made on social media. The Manchester United player who led a successful campaign to force the government to U-turn and extend free school meals to children from low-income families over the summer holidays intervened again on the issue. Kevin Hollenrake, the MP for Thursk and Moulton, posted to social media that where they can, it's a parent's job to feed their children. Within just a few hours, the post caught the attention of Rashford. He sent a message to Holland Rake saying I would urge you to talk to families before tweeting. To this day he said I haven't met one parent who hasn't wanted or felt the responsibility to feed their children. More than 200,000 people have been ordered to evacuate areas of Japan threatened by an approaching storm. Typhoon Haishin is expected to intensify on Sunday, bringing heavy rain, storm surges and winds of more than 100 miles per hour. It will move past Kyushu on Sunday and is expected to make landfall on Monday in South Korea, which has raised its typhoon warning to the highest level. It comes just days after Maisak, one of the region's strongest typhoons in years. Haishin has led to the closure of factories, schools and businesses across western Japan. Hundreds of flights and train services have also been cancelled. 
In what some commentators have called Dom Kirk, several boats have sunk on a lake in the US state of Texas during a parade to support President Donald Trump in November's election. Authorities say choppy water was likely caused by the large number of vessels moving closely together on Lake Travis near the state capital, Austin. Images showed boats with Trump campaign flags maneuvering at close quarters. Media say people had to be rescued from the water, but there were no immediate reports of injuries. The event called Lake Travis Trump Boat parade was organized on Facebook and more than 2,600 people marked themselves as having attended it. And finally, Amazon had banned foreign sales of seeds in the US after mysterious unsolicited packages were sent to thousands of people. US authorities have warned people not to plant the seeds, which are mostly postmarked from China, and they say could be part of a scam. According to plant experts, seeds from other parts of the world could harm local ecosystems. In July, the US Department of Agriculture identified more than a dozen plant species in the packages, ranging from morning glories to mustard. It says the package were most likely part of a brushing scam when sellers send items to people without them placing orders and then post false positive customer reviews to boost sales. Last month, USDA experts analyzing some of the seeds from China found very few problems, but both countries are working jointly on an investigation into the incident. And that's the latest here on Sputnik News. I'm Jamie Lowe. Listening to Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Only on Sputnik Radio. Okay, the second poll is up. What will Meghan and Harry's Netflix show be called? A. Gone with the Windsors. <laughs> That's very funny. B. Suits us. Or see the royal family. You can vote now on my Twitter feed at George Galloway. Uh, and that poll is in honor of our next guest, uh, whom I've known for a very long time, sat in Parliament with for many years. He was the Lib Dem MP for Lewis from 1997 to 2015, and he established a reputation as one of the most dogged and persistent parliamentary interrogators the modern House of Commons has known. And that's not an exaggeration. Following the 2010 general election, he was appointed parliamentary undersecretary for state of state for transport. Then he was minister of state for crime prevention at the Home Office. And crucially, he's the author of the acclaimed The Strange Death of David Kelly. In fact, he is an executive producer of my film, Killing Kelly, uh, which uh, completed the uh, reconstructions and the filming uh, this week, just yesterday, uh, in fact. Uh, and uh, Norman's book uh, provides the intellectual platform uh, for the investigation into that strange death of Dr. David Kelly. Uh, but he has written other books, and his latest book is particularly apposite today. It's called What the Royal Family Don't Want You to Know. And what do you do? It's a very cute title. I've read the book, actually. It is brilliant. It was first published in 2019, and the paperback is published this week. And it's updated 
to include developments in the royal family uh, that uh, could not have been envisaged even when he wrote the first draft of it. Meghan and Harry have gone Hollywood, gone with the Windsors, they've left us. And Prince Andrew is gripping on to this sceptered isle uh, with uh, uh, his fingernails, because the alternative would be extradition to the United States and sincere and severe questioning on his relations with Jeffrey Epstein. So uh, he's just finished his own radio show, which is a music show, which he does, does uh, twice a week. So we've only got him on audio, uh, but I'm glad to say he joins me now. Norman Baker, welcome. George, nice to speak to you again. No, you're, I actually, I don't always, I actually read all of your book. It is brilliant. It is a tour de force. It goes into the corners uh, of uh, the royal family and its relationship to the rest of us, financial, political, and so on, in a very forensic and brilliantly written way. But even your book and even your skill as a writer could not have made up uh, what has happened in the last few months. Uh, I presume your update covers those. Uh, very much so. And uh, I must say that my sales force of uh, Prince Andrew and Prince Harry have been out there selling my book for me, um, doing their best to promote it, um, in behaving in ways which I think most people, including no doubt uh, members of his family, find, uh, or their family, find extraordinary. Um, as you say, Prince Andrew is... Um, facing severe calls from the United States to give evidence. Um, he had that car crash interview with uh, Emily Maitlis on, on BBC when um, apparently you couldn't remember having an arm around um, uh, that 17-year-old, um, Virginia Roberts, but was able nevertheless to remember exactly the time and date when he went to a Pizza Express restaurant in Woking. So I think people found um, his interview um, calamitous and, and unbelievable, and it's gone really from bad to worse. You mentioned he was frightened of extradition. Well, it's a little known fact, and I've put this in my updated version, which actually is out tomorrow, so your program is very well timed for me, uh, that he engaged um, the barrister who defended General Pinochet when he was um, uh, subject to an attempt to extradite him. So clearly he has that worry on his, on his mind. Now, uh, what would be the, there's no precedent for that. I mean, no uh, government has ever sought to extradite a member of the British royal family. Uh, so there's no, uh, there's no uh, case history, as it were. What would be his protection? in diplomatic immunity and so on. Does he have diplomatic immunity? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question because he would do um, were he a uh, serving member of the royal family, a working royal, as it were, although they don't work very much. Um, the question is whether that's still the case. Now he has stopped being a working royal. He has, however, retained his HRH status, as has Prince Harry, and that's not a, a, an insignificant matter. What it means is that uh, they can still claim, uh, for example, um, security support at public expense. They can claim travel at public expense. So even though they're not working royals, uh, they get that benefit. And they probably get the benefit of protection as well. So the answer is probably quite difficult to extradite them. But nevertheless, I'm sure the Americans would like to do so. But what we, I mean, what's the justification for uh, refusing to 
uh, go to the United States and, and uh, answer these questions. Uh, well, from his point of view, there's none. I mean, if he's, if he's entirely innocent, as he maintains consistently in the palace, uh, shriek out loud to say so, then um, why doesn't you simply answer the questions which they're putting? If he, uh, for instance, the, the, the uh, Metropolitan Police have records going back 30 years as to where all the Royal Protection Officers were at any particular point, and therefore it's very well easy to establish <clears throat> where Prince Andrew's protection officers were on any particular date. And if he was at Pizza Express uh, in working, that will show up on their records. Now, I've put in a freedom of information request in, um, for their information, but they're not keen to release it. But Prince Andrew, if he's entirely innocent, should be released that information himself. Himself, indeed. Um, what's the reason, what's the justification for the FBI not coming here to question him? Well, I imagine that there's been quite a lot of pressure put on by the British government to um, avoid the embarrassment of the situation. And that's, that's, that's historically what's happened in the past. If you look back at to the end of the Second World War, this is also in my book in the chapter called Germany Calling. Oh, brilliant uh, chapter, brilliant. Thank you. Well, there was a lot of information there, George, as you know, about um, about Edward VIII yeah. uh, and his embarrassing activities and how the British government, after the Second World War, when it should have been rebuilding Britain, uh, this is the Labour government who did quite a lot of good things, but they spent a huge amount of diplomatic um, money, as it were, um, trying to persuade the Americans to destroy information about Edward VIII. So they go to extraordinary lengths, don't they, to um, protect the royal family. So I imagine that's part of the problem. Now, uh, Harry and Meghan... Uh, as far as we know, have not been up to anything insalubrious, uh, but they uh, have abandoned the country and have allowed to gain momentum uh, the thesis that they were driven out of the country uh, because Meghan is black of mixed race. Well, I think there's no doubt that... Um... <clears throat> She found it difficult to assimilate herself into the rather starchy uh, Windsor family. And there is a history of not liking what they would call uppity women. Um, look at what happened to Princess Diana, who also who also um, sailed off in the direction of her own. And I imagine that when you do that, then it's not very welcome. Uh, royal women are, are expected to um, paint their fingernails, um, keep their knees together, um, simper when their husbands are around and say nothing. Uh, it's a very 1950s attitude. It hasn't changed. And clearly, Meghan is an independent woman, found us very difficult. So I can quite understand why she felt it very uh, suffocating. And Harry appears to be fully in love with her and therefore would support her. And also he was uh, reasonably independent minded too. So the fact that they've gone off, I've got some sympathy with. And if they want to go and make money in Hollywood, that's up to them. I don't have a problem with that. What I do have a problem with is when they keep one foot in the royal camp and one foot outside. Um, Harry has kept, as I mentioned a moment ago, his HRH status. That means that at this moment, we, the taxpayers, are paying for security guards to wander around Frogmore Cottage um, in, uh, in Windsor Great Park which, of course, he um, abandoned very shortly after 2.3 million of public money being spent on it. We're paying for the security of that. We'll pay for the travel when they come back to the UK. And to my mind, that's not on. If he wants to leave the royal family, he should be allowed to do so. Uh, but he has to leave it, not half leave it, and claim financial support when it suits him. Yes, and, and that goes for the title also, doesn't it? Why would it does. you want to continue to be known as His Royal Highness if you'd given the whole show up. 
Well, indeed, I, I, I can only think that uh, it's either um, egotism or, in fact, it's um, seen to be beneficial when he's negotiating deals with people like Netflix. But at least he's His Royal Highness. Uh, Prince Andrew, of course, was known in diplomatic circles as His Buffoon Highness, HBH. Well, you could say that. I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, I'd end up in the tower. Um, finally, uh, your, your, your uh, reissued uh, 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 copies are what, online or are they in the bookshops tomorrow in paperback? Yes, I, I think uh, hopefully they're everywhere, George. I mean, uh, certainly they're on Amazon and, and uh, there is an audio book actually as well, an audio book version, but that's of the, um, the hardback rather than the paperback. Uh, and certainly it's online. So uh, I know a couple of people have already had it delivered actually, which it shouldn't have done ahead of uh, Monday, but um, a couple of people I know got it yesterday when they ordered it. It's totally brilliant. Uh, now, Thank your, you. how's your music career doing? <laughs> Well, I think I've probably ticked that box after 25 years with the band uh, and releasing three albums. So I think I'll probably leave it there. My music these days is, uh, as you said in your introduction, my music show is here on Seahaven FM, my local FM station. And I've just done uh, an hour of blues, which I love, and an hour of uh, 70s hits, which I also do. And tomorrow night, my other time I'm with the station, I do what's called Hidden 60s when I play material from the 1960s, which people don't know, like B-sides and EP tracks and so on. Fantastic. You're a cool cat. Norman Baker, right honourable, former Lib Dem MP and minister. In the David Cameron coalition government, thank you very much, Norman, uh, for joining us. I, I mean it, by the way, it is a terrific book, as is his book about David Kelly. So Gone with the Windsors is sitting on 54%. Suits us, 34%. You see what we did there? And the royal family spelt wrongly or perhaps rightly 12 percent you can vote now on my twitter feed at george galloway let's take a quick break radio sputnik you know i had uh, that george galloway back in here the other day well i'll tell you what talk about the knowledge by the time he got out i had a first class degree we are talking 24 hours a day, 7 days a week You are listening We give you the most essential out of the endless information space Radio Sputnik Telling the untold It's for you, sir. Where's the cheese pizza, Robinson? Come on, what are the public paying you for? Oh, and uh, get another virgin colada while you're there. There's a good chap. Now, who's ringing the old uh, burner phone? Hello? How did you get this number, Ghislaine? No, 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 that's impossible. I, I can't possibly fly to New York. Why? Uh, our mummy's grounded me, oh, yes. Certain to cut off my allowance, you know. Y yes, yes, I, I know it comes from the public, but uh, she holds the strings. Oh, I've uh, got to go. Uh, my, my pizza will be here uh, any minute. I'm not sweating, you're sweating. Ghislaine, don't call again. Robinson? Sir? Come here with that moist towelette. 
getting a bit hot for my liking. George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. He's good, that lad, that imitates me. Uh, anyway, I've got a cough, sweetie, and I hope you don't mind. I've got to get through the next 40 minutes. Harry, you've missed off. We've buggered off with all the money. And on Twitter, Faith says Julian Assange should not be extradited at all. But he certainly must not be extradited until Anne Sekoulas has been. Indeed, if she were not here within the week, then he should be released on the spot. And Elaine says, can I ask how Assange has a one-year-old and a three-year-old if he's been locked in and isolated? Do the maths, Elaine. The children were conceived when he was in the Ecuador media. All right, here's a call on 9-11. David in Southport. Go ahead, David. How are you? Good. I was an eyewitness in New York that day. I was living there for, for, for several years, and I just wanted to give you three comments and observations uh, about, about that and what, uh, what came afterwards. We don't need to linger on the first two, but I just want to get them out there. Uh, and we'll discuss the third one in more detail because it relates to what people were discussing earlier. Number one, in that first, I was in Manhattan when, when, it, when it hit. I was in the queue for the Holland Tunnel, and by the time, after a few minutes, I was in New Jersey. So by the time the second plane hit, I was in New Jersey. That's exactly where I was. But once I was in the office working in New Jersey, in that first four to five hours on local radio and TV in New York at the time, in New Jersey, all of the discussion was about the PLO and Yasser Arafat and the Palestinians and terrorism. So before anyone on the Dan Rather and the national people had came up with the news, this is what local New York and New Jersey people were talking about. Everyone in the office was saying, why did the PLO do this? I told you Arafat couldn't be trusted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's all what the talk was. That's, that, that's long forgotten. But that's what I was surrounded by for about five hours. Okay? The second point is regarding the death toll. Uh, we know it ultimately became 2,800. But months and months after that, uh, many people, many, many people believed it to be m multiples more than that. Now, initially, for weeks, people didn't know one way or another. But months later, nothing was done to change the death toll. You know, people I met six, eight, nine months later, once Afghanistan had started, were still talking 30,000 killed. And that number, they were massaging the figures. Now, thirdly, and more importantly, to get on to what we were discussing about, in the year or two or three afterwards, uh, people started uh, putting out leaflets. It'd be men with tables in New York and other cities I'd visit in the States with information about this, about this inside job and all the rest of it. Friends I knew would sign up and get VHS tapes and DVDs, and, and they'd, be, they'd be sent to links on, on how, where to watch uh, how this thing was an inside job and so on. And, and I, as I watched this happening, I was just looking at it, and I was thinking to myself, well, you know, it made no sense other than perhaps that the, 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 they, were, they were fishing for information. They were fishing for who is suspicious of the government. So after a period of time, so many people who were suspicious of the government were just itching to believe something like this was an inside job. And all of a sudden, after a few years, the, 
the, the government, and I'm sorry if I sound conspiratorial, would know that two or three million people are suspicious of their own government. And what that boiled down to, I would say, was that, you know, uh, they were embarrassed. A Yemeni, you know, uh, a man for, with a wicked genius from an engineering family had outfoxed them, and they would rather be more embarrassed than be exposed for, for that. They would rather a conspiracy theory about their power than be embarrassed. And that's the third point I wanted to get across to all the people who are conspiracists about this being an inside job and so on. That's a very interesting call, David, uh, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, the 9-11 report has uh, a lot of redacted pages. I think it's 27, something like that. We need to know what's on those pages. We need to know what the real relationship was uh, with Saudi Arabia. Uh, between the Bush administration and Saudi Arabia. You'll recall the ambassador at the time uh, was known as Bandar Bush. He was so friendly with the Bush family. Uh, Elder Bush made a lot of money out of uh, Saudi Arabia. Younger Bush was uh, frequently on the cigar uh, platform at the White House smoking uh, with uh, Prince Bandar. Um, and, of course, there are all these peculiar movements uh, of uh, Saudi families, including the Bin Laden family, uh, outlined in uh, the brilliant 9-11 uh, by Michael Moore. Um, then there's the issues that we discussed earlier of the interagency rivalries that either deliberately or um, by accident allowed this uh, great crime uh, to uh, take place. But the point I made to Walter earlier, I make again to you, though I'm pushing at an open door, because you agree with me, I think. Um, why would the United States have to go not only to the lengths of exploding their own twin towers and killing thousands of their own people, but also flying planes into the building. Talk about overkill. What kind of uh, cover did you need to attack Afghanistan that would require you to do such an elaborate thing which hundreds of people would have to know about uh, and the risk of exposure would be literally total. Uh, George Bush would have been executed if he had mounted an inside job of this kind and been discovered. David. Yes. Yep. You with me on that? I'm totally, I'm to, I'm totally with you. There was no inside job, George. There, if you knew the states, if you know the U.S. at that time, you could get on planes and shuttle planes between Washington and New York and D.C. I had a friend once, I was supposed to meet him in D.C., and he got on the plane to Boston by accident. You know, that's how it was. And the fact is, is Bin Laden just outsmarted them and pulled, and pulled off and pulled this off. That, that, that's all. And they're too embarrassed to admit it. They'd, ra they'd rather you believe something else. David, great call, David, in uh, Southport. Um, call me if you disagree, by the way. Uh, you've got my number, 02077 982 or from the U.S., 001-757-744-4480. And uh, David, on the Julian Assange thing, <coughs> excuse me, says, I'd be totally surprised 
if the mainstream media even mention the hearing of this giant of a man. Shame on their silence, or should I say cowardice. Indeed, David. And Dan says, I'm puzzled as to why you abandon facts and intellect regarding the three towers in New York that just fell down when such a thing has never happened, as supported by hundreds of architects and engineers. The why of such a phenomenon is not the first question. The how is the first question. It's weird that nobody in media, including you, will even discuss investigating the facts of this event. Dan, call me, because you'll discover that I'm in favor of investigating these events. I think we need a new investigation into 9-11. Not because I believe your theory uh, that the uh, buildings were lined with explosives and that maybe the airplanes didn't really hit them. At least that was Walter's theory. Not because I believe that, but because I believe all the issues we've discussed this evening and many more uh, deserve proper investigation and have not had it. And the Bush administration has not been held accountable for the many egregious blunders or crimes uh, that were committed on their watch in relation to 9-11. Uh, I'm in favor of a reinvestigation. I can't think of anything more applicable than a reopening of that investigation. There are hundreds of architects and engineers on your side, but there are hundreds of architects and engineers on my side. I'm not arguing that George Bush was not wicked enough uh, to carry out this crime. I'm saying that whilst he may have been stupid enough, uh, the rest of the people in the US state were not stupid enough to take such an utterly unnecessary risk to achieve something they could easily have achieved uh, without any cover at all. None at all. Let's go to John in Pittsburgh. John, welcome. Hey, George, I just wanted to tell you, I, I just seen your channel on YouTube, and uh, I know of you through um, being on RT America, and I thank you for telling the truth on a lot of topics that a lot of times you won't hear on mainstream media. Thank you. But um, what you're talking about right now, I just want to make a quick comment. That was an inside job. I mean, the World Trade Center, uh, that was a controlled demolition. There's a video on YouTube right now your viewers and listeners can watch called Wake Up Call. Wake Up Call, it's a documentary. There's proof that they, they had a, it's in the second part of the documentary called Wake Up Call on YouTube. Proof There's of what, proof John? Proof of what? That, that was a controlled demolition. There are, plus there are, plus so, the airplanes. There are, there are so many eyewitness accounts that they show in this documentary coming from mainstream news work, networks, ABC, CBS, CNN, all of them, shown eyewitnesses, hundreds of them. But what about the planes, John? You, you accept well, the planes no, the hit the plane, buildings, don't you? Well, yes, there, the planes did hit the buildings, and that's what they said. The jet fuel caused the demolition, but no. That came down in free fall speed, and all these eyewitnesses that they interviewed, 
on in this documentary, they were all live newscasts at the time. Yeah, they all said but all what, these people What do you say? Said, what do you say, John? To my point, that why would you go to all that trouble, uh, either the planes or the controlled demolition? But why both? Uh, because what we've had endless wars ever since, George. We've had endless wars ever <clears> since. I, I hate to break it, this to you, but there's only been six years in the entire history of your country when you have not been at war, and none exactly, of them needed exactly. none of them needed a, a, a crime of this complexity and scale to justify them. Well, exactly, I agree with you 100 percent. I mean, there is none. Our government killed so many people, millions upon millions of people, and it's disgusting to me. It's really disgusting. It, it, sometimes, you know, I listen to this and just shake my head because our government's always starting wars all across the world, and it's just getting endless, and it's just sickening. And I hope someone like China or Russia finally put the U.S. government in, in its place. Now, John, because John, you're in Pittsburgh, um, Steel Town, and part of the Rust Belt, uh, if you don't mind me putting it that way, uh, that uh, put Donald Trump in power because the people believed uh, first that the Clintons were a considerable reason for their misery uh, and that Trump would do something about it. How does that look in Pittsburgh four years on? Well, to be honest with you, George, I've been a lifelong Democrat, but I plan on voting for Trump this year because of what's going on with the burn, loot, and murder mob, Black Lives Matter, the burn, loot, and murder mob. They, they, they've caused—now, they're, they're supposed to be against racism, but they've caused nothing but racism. You listen to channels like CNN, MSNBC, all the networks. All they show is a black guy getting killed by police. And, you know, there's actually more whites than getting killed by police, but you never see that on mainstream media at all because they're trying to start racial division and more or less the civil war is probably coming to America, especially if Trump gets reelected, which I think he will. But I believe the election results will be postponed because of mail-in ballots. And either side is going to challenge the election results. So we're not going to know who won until probably weeks later, like it was in 2000. I mean, I, I just feel that this is going to cause more and more racial division. And in America, honestly, our dollar's going down. It's all because of this coronavirus, this fake virus, COVID-19, where over 98% of people are recovering from. And all the media tells you, oh, there's been more, more um uh, COVID-19, you know, uh, they, they, they have confirmed more more uh, people getting COVID-19, but they're not talking about the death, the death total. Well, 2% and, is, a, if it's 2%, as you just said, that's a, a very large number of uh, people dying. Not, not, not when there's 330 million people in America. And I'm just saying that, I, and also, if you look at the CDC's own website, they came out with a statement last week that only 6% of people that had con was confirmed with COVID-19 died from COVID-19, only 6%. The other 94% had underlying uh, illnesses, at least two or three different illnesses. 
And they all said COVID-19 was the cause of death because these hospitals are getting like $13,000 per COVID patient and over $39,000 additionally if they if they have, were put on a, um, a ventilator. So these hospitals Who, are getting who's like giving them Who's giving them that money? Probably the, our, our government, probably through Donald these Trump's government. Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. It's, but but it's also the Democrats that have to pay, have to uh, approve this, and all these and all these numbers that they're giving you like are fake ass unemployment numbers. You think about it, they're saying our unemployment numbers dropped when over a million people each week here in the U.S. have lost their jobs. Over a million. I must, how is the, it in Pittsburgh? How is it in Pennsylvania? Unemployment. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot of times it's all it, what what. The only times I recall Trump ever actually telling the truth was about the networks here in the U.S. about being fake news. Fake news. That's, the, most, that's the one thing that will last from his yeah. uh, his uh, era. He certainly wakened up people to the fake news media. Uh, John in Pittsburgh, thanks uh, very much for that call. I appreciate it. Uh, and Scott Fury, what a wonderful name. Scott Fury in Glasgow. I don't have any social left. That's all my uh, social. So let's go to uh, Scott uh, when we can. He is in Glasgow and he wants to argue there is no democracy. Will he be angry? Will he be furious with me, Scott Fury? Now, will uh, Meghan and Harry's Netflix show be called Gone with the Windsors? 59%. Good taste. Suits us? 29 the royal family, 12%. You can still vote for another 10 minutes or so on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Uh, Des says, their, uh, their show on Netflix should be called The Prince and the Showgirl. And on YouTube, John says, the British mainstream media do such a brilliant propaganda job on the British royal family, it would make Joseph Goebbels green with envy. And Remy says, there was no 9-11 conspiracy. They found the guy's passport in the rubble of the fallen building. And Martin says, there's another intriguing book I might have to order. Thanks, George. If I keep listening to this show, I'll need a library, not a bookshelf. By the way, if you're interested in it, watch The Looming Tower. The Looming Tower. It's the television series based on this uh, case, this kind of argument. It's totally, totally brilliant. And Chris says, that building fell down in free fall all by itself, and no plane struck it. This is new to me, actually. I never knew there were people out there who denied even that the planes struck the buildings, even though I actually saw it happening. That's the biggest red flag of the entire event, says Chris. And the fact that the BBC announced it had fallen down before it had actually happened. Chris is a little bit confused. And on Twitter, Hassan says, David was spot on. The US was naive prior to 9-11, and bin Laden just took advantage of this. Can we have Scott Fury? Scott, welcome. Ah, thank you, George. Yes, it's Scott Fury from Glasgow and Furious from Glasgow, as I am normally. Excellent, um, excellent. George, George, uh, uh, I know you're a big fan of Michael Moore. Um, he, he recently said, I'd vote for Biden, but I won't sanction his life. 
Yeah, he said, I'll vote for Biden, but I won't lie for Biden. I thought that yeah, was a yeah, very good yeah. line. Uh, okay, okay, okay. But if you vote for someone, you do sanction what they do. Yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's what you do. Yeah. It's, it's, you, know, you know when people say, you know, oh, well, you can't complain if you don't vote. Um, yes, you can if you do vote for someone, and they do what they said they're going to do when, when you vote for them, then you are to blame for voting them. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, so exactly. When, when, I agree with you. Yeah, if you don't vote... I could never vote for Joe Biden. Never no, in a million anyway, years. George, not George, at the point of death. I no, couldn't no, vote for Donald George, Trump either. No, it's, George, this is my point, right? Now, when you're only given two neoliberal, privatising, warmongering, absolute mass murderers, psychopaths to vote for... The senile against the venile. Yes, it's not... A democracy. That's not a democracy. When you're given, and they will, like they did for Blair, they will, George, vote for Starmer, whoever wooden top is put in his place in, in four years' time. They will vote for Starmer, because by that time, the, the, <clears throat> the sun will be, will be, well, we told you to vote for them, and they will, the people of this country will vote new new labor the, the sun will be out of business by then scott yes i know i know george but the point i'm making is there will be a new wooden block in his place the point i'm making is there is no opposition now there was an opposition and i know he's your old friend and i know that he didn't he didn't do what you wanted him to do he was in his in, in his policies and opposition, that was a true opposition. He, he wanted to renationalize the rail, renationalize the privatized um, health service, which they don't even admit as being uh, privatized anyway. So, he, okay, his methods were not... Um, not successful. Not successful. But his mind and his um, self and his whole demeanor... Sorry, demeanor. His, his, his whole um, way was... Um, he was of us. He was, he was just a nice guy, right? What I'm saying now is, look all over across the world. Where you think democracy lies, there's no democracy. We don't have democracy anywhere. It's like when people say, well, socialism failed. No, it didn't. When socialism reared its beautiful head, it was crushed. It didn't fail, it was crushed. Where is no there is no democracy now. We have no democracy anywhere on this planet right now and i will challenge anyone to ring in and tell me where there has been a true democracy where the people had a vote and then them people carried out that vote and then that vote went forth with i challenge any caller to ring in and say yes okay. that happened and for the next 10 years that was the democracy that was let's see if anyone takes you up on your challenge scott fury angry of glasgow thanks very much for calling Let's take a 60-second break, that's all. Tune in every Thursday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for a regular segment called Criminal Injustice about the most egregious conduct of our courts and how justice is denied to so many people in this country. Tune in to Loud and Clear this Thursday and every Thursday for thorough and independent analysis of our criminal injustice system. Well, um, how did I do? I'm sorry, Prime Minister. 
At no point did you drive on the left-hand side of the road, and instead of driving us forward, you made several U-turns. We haven't gone anywhere. Well, I, I think you'll find if you turn backwards uh, enough times, eventually uh, you'll go forward. So, uh, did I pass? No. You failed miserably. But my teachers said I'd get much higher grades. Better luck next time. Uh, this doesn't happen to people uh, like me. You leave me no choice. I'm sorry, but rules are rules, even for Prime Ministers. What on earth is that? My mutant pet. Dominic Cummins. No big algorithm. Get it. Global higher education with one of the world's best known iconoclasts. The mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Now, uh, this show is every Sunday, of course. Same time, same place, and that will continue, uh, God willing, forever, uh, as long as I'm alive and after me, my children. Uh, but we uh, have decided uh, that we want to do a midweek moats extra. Uh, that will not be on RT, will not be on Sputnik. It's entirely independent, so it'll have to be supported by the viewers and the listeners. Uh, because I'm not expecting any of the corporations to line up to advertise with us. But if we get anything remotely like the audience uh, that we get on a Sunday night, then, of course, even advertisers will have to pay attention to that. Uh, but it will be starting uh, next month in October. Uh, stay tuned on my Facebook and on my Twitter and here. Uh, where I'll be updating you on what's going to happen, when it's going to start, and uh, we'll advertise it and promote it uh, each Sunday night here. But it'll be on a Wednesday night. It'll be on a Wednesday night, and it'll be pay-per-view. You can pay a reduced subscription uh, that will give you a whole year of the programs, but it will be $1 per night, which I think is fair. Uh, so if you want to see a midweek moats, me with my hair down, untrammeled, uh, absolutely free and independent, talking about the issues, arguing with people, bringing on great guests, some good laughs also uh, will be uh, lined up. A bit like my old uh, talk sport show back in the early days, 15 years or so ago. It'll be more like that than like this. So if that appeals to you, put it in your diary now that in October, every Wednesday night, there's going to be a mother of all talk shows extra, and it'll cost you $1, which in Britain is, I think, about 75 pence. And if you do it, uh, then we can make a really successful show out of that. And uh, we might even be able to go on to my ultimate ambition which would be a daily show, kind of John Stewart daily show, but with better politics. Lee is in Grimsby. Let's hear from him. Lee, go ahead. Hello there. Hi. I'm a, a big fan. Just wanted to mention that before we start. Thanks. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank uh, you. You are 
not a dissenting voice, but you are, you know, a different opinion out there, which is uh, yeah. Great. I think a lot of people agree with me. Uh, I don't, th I don't think I'm, uh, you know, howling at the moon. Uh, I think uh, it's it's the it's the mainstream media that is the 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 they're they're beyond the pill. They are howling at the moon. If you ask me. Anyway, Lee, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, you're all right. <coughs> now, what, what I wanted to make, you, know, so you had the good, good doctor on earlier on, and I just wanted to um, put this point across, really, for any parents out there. Uh, the way I'm viewing this situation with the COVID is, uh, obviously, my children go back to school, and uh, they, to be honest, they have uh, all the way through, um, you know, apart from the summer holidays. But the, the point I want to make is that, obviously, asymptomatic people, uh, whether that's a child or adult, can't spread this disease, okay? Can't? Uh, no, I mean, you've got to be, I mean, to spread it, obviously, you've got to be dropping droplets, so you've got to be either coughing, sneezing, etc. Uh, no, you can, uh, you can drop droplets just in conversation. You, you can, can, you can it, have it, it on it your hand and yeah, put it on somebody else's hand. The way the WHO described it is, uh, <clears throat> you know, it has to have that mucus there to really attach. Um, it, you know, it's unlikely that by talking, you know, I won't disagree with you because mm. it's possible, but mm. it's unlikely that uh, by talking you do this. I mean, most people pick up colds, as you know, from like uh, surfaces, as it, like door handles, etc. You know, uh, things like that. So, uh, you know, if someone sneezes in the hand, whatever, they mm. touch the door handle, you come along, touch the door handle, that's a, you know, you touch your face, you get a cold, uh, regardless whether your mask or not. So it's it's very similar, and know, and I've pointed out to the school, and I am aware, and I'm looking around, you know, the place where you do, you take kids in, but I'm just making sure the school are aware, you know, if if kids do have coughs and sneezes and that, they obviously they've got to be more aware, you know, due the climate we're in, they've got to be more aware of that, and just maybe these kids shouldn't be in school. Uh, well, you know, isn't that what they're doing with bubbles? Uh, that uh, if one kid in the bubble uh, begins to display symptoms. Uh, then that bubble has to go home and uh, has to isolate. Well, exactly. That that is, you know, that is what needs to be done. I think, um, you know, you know, everybody else at school, you know, I'm just saying to parents, like, it's it's not all doom and gloom. You know, the kids will be safe at school. Uh, well, I don't. I, I mean, I hope you're right, Lee. I am sending mine back yeah. uh, because it's been a long time. They have definitely lost something uh over, even though we've tried our best uh homework and uh online work and so on but it's not the same they have lost something in uh educationally uh, but they've also lost something socially uh and so although i was against it before i am now going to send my children to school this week and i think uh, most people will uh, for a variety of reasons a lot of people need it to happen so that they can get back to work, for example. Um, that's not the case in our house, but it is in other people's houses. Uh, you say your kids have been going throughout. Yeah, well, I'm a key worker, or yeah. a key worker, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm delivering food and stuff, so... They, they, yeah, they've been, they've been able to attend... And uh, have, they been, have they been fine? Have they not picked anything up? Now nah, they've been they've been good as gold. They've been fine, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, the only other point I wanted to make just quickly is on the vaccine, yeah. you know, when it comes about. Obviously, yeah. there's been no vaccine um, ever made that was 100% safe. No. Um, obviously, there's allergies. People have got allergies to all different things, some of the chemicals and vaccines, you know, nuts, uh, dairy, whatever it is. And uh, there will be collateral damage from the vaccine. So sure. if people are thinking that they need to go and get this vaccine because they don't want to catch it, I, I think, like the doctor said, there is at-risk groups of comorbid it is, elderly people, etc. And I think those are the people who need the vaccine, not everybody else. Um, and, you know, when the conspiracy side of thing comes into it, where you talk about Bill Gates making money from this... Uh, well, isn't it because the Russians have uh, beaten them to it? Uh, well, I, I, I'm ready to fly to Moscow to get mine uh, in the morning if they want. Lee, thanks. Uh, terrific uh, call, uh, covering uh, a number of bases. Okay, the polls finished. Gone with the Windsors, wins out of the park, 58%. Brilliant title. Suits us, 29%, also a respectable one. And 13% to the royal uh, family. Uh, now, last uh, comments. Uh, on uh, Facebook and so on. Deborah says, so if this wasn't a conspiracy, then it was a series of coincidences. Many, many, many coincidences, all creating a perfect attack. Not convinced by the probability of all those coincidences, says Deborah. And Martin says, the design of the building was not designed to be struck from the outside by a 179-ton bird. And on email, Chris says, World Trade Center 7, George. It was the third tower to fall down that day, and no plane hit it. The planes hit Tower 1 and 2. So you accept it, Chris, that the planes hit Tower 1 and 2. Good. Go on, he says. Please correct yourself, and don't ridicule me, who has the correct facts. Not at all. No ridicule intended. Nestor is in Maryland on 9-11. Let's go with it, Nestor. Hey, thank you for giving me a chance to talk. Um, I know you've been asking every caller, like, you know, what, what is the reason and why would United States need to, you know, create this narrative, create this uh, cover-up? Uh, you know, it's, it's simple. It goes back to the U.S. history that they've been creating narratives uh, to do what they have to do. You know, for example, with Julian Assange, they can't just tell the U.K., uh, government to uh, hand over Julian Assange because he embarrassed them by exposing their war crimes. And if they don't, they will bomb them to kingdom come. You know, it, it, it's just even though someone has the that's power a bit of a to straw, commit that's violence. That's a straw man, uh, Nestor. Uh, it, let's, I, let's actually not look in the crystal ball, but look at the book. Why did the United States have to kill thousands of its own people in such an elaborate conspiracy to justify a war against Afghanistan. Tell me. Well, after the Soviet Union failed, the United States had this huge apparatus of military industrial complex, which it no longer had a way to justify to keep. And five years, uh, and, and they had to come up with a way and a reason to, to have this military power and to convince the world that they needed to still be the one and sole superpower in the world 
and something that they could trust. So they needed to play the victim card. They needed something that would give that narrative and say, hey, we, we have this new enemy called terrorism, and look what they did to us. Look, look, look how they were able to attack the strongest, most powerful uh, nation in the world. I was in seventh grade when I saw this happen, George. I was watching live as well, watching those planes hit those towers, and I knew right there and then something was very off that, this, that something like this could happen to the most powerful were a country in the world that had no rival to equal its own uh, might, and 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 there was it, that that is my um, why they would have to do some narrative like that to convince the world that the world needs this this uh, this superpower, this military superpower to exist. And do you think uh, George Bush himself presided over this atrocity? Oh no, presidents have been. More or less, presidents throughout the U.S. history have been more or less uh, than, than uh, puppets uh, to, you know, say that this is what uh, speaks for the people because, you know, we have uh, a democracy and we can vote people in, and, and this somehow represents the will of the people. Uh, the, the United States American empire agenda has been a monster of its own. And regardless of what presidents have been in power, they have had to follow the agenda because the moment, just like J.F. Kennedy chose not to follow that agenda, he was assassinated cold-bloodedly. Uh, uh, and, 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 and this is the case. Every president knows that they have to straw, the, they have to maintain that line. They have to say we, we must make our military stronger. They, they all say the same thing because the moment they step out of line, they know that they're it's in, it's, in, it's in the crosshairs. Nestor in Maryland, last call of the night, I'm afraid, but thank you very much indeed for making it. Carl says, ah, the Royals, even no news becomes news. Isn't it time for this archaic system to just disappear? Ken says their Netflix show should be called Shame of Thrones. That's a good one. And Hannah says, remarkably harried. And Martin says, don't people today still die from complications from the flu? Don't we have a flu vaccine? Why would the results be any different with a COVID vaccine? Our people are lacking common sense. Trump 2020, says Martin. We can do this. Well, there you go. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back at the same time and the same place next week and bring another listener, bring another viewer with you. Why don't you? I'm going home to take some Lemsip and go to bed because I've got a pretty bad cold. Thanks for sticking with me. <laughs>